Experience today, we're going to talk about classic wrestling and then evaluate last week's AEW TV and my upcoming colonoscopy and see which one I'd rather endure again. And to join me, Hawaiian Brian, the podcasting lion, the king of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Mr. Co host, you, he's the former professor of proctology at Princeton, the great Brian Last, everybody. Aloha, Jim. A pleasure to be here once again. And I have not been caffeinated. I've had no coffee today, but I think we're going to have a good show. I thought you were going to say you hadn't been certified as a professor of proctology, but you'd, you'd spent many nights in, in research. In Princeton, yes. At Princeton. Huh, so you seen any good bomb cyclones lately? Apparently all around me. We kind of are at the outer perimeter, so we only got four to six inches, but... Everyone else got nailed in the area, it seems like. Just the outer perimeter got four to six inches, but boy, right there in the middle, got about 12 to 18. The Wrestling Fans International Association Convention of 1980. Remember that famed early groundbreaking group, the in WFIA? Atlanta? It was in Atlanta at the Perimeter North Inn. In Atlanta, I don't know if it's still there or not. It wasn't wasn't anything to write home about or buy the postcards in the gift shop in 1980. So I don't know what it might look like now. But I swear to God, one of the and I'm trying to think who it was now. God, it wouldn't nobody would know anyway any of these fans anymore, a minute percentage. But one of the fans wrote that they were so excited. Wrote into one of the newsletters, the bulletin. I think it was actually the. Uh, it might have been Tom Burks, or it might have been the actual WFIA bulletin itself, and they printed the letters. She's so excited. It was a, gir- a girl. She was so excited to be coming to the Peter Meter North End. <laughs> so how many inches you say you got, Brian? How many girls were at the WFIA convention? There was a no. The, uh, seriously. It, I know. It was like half and half, because, I mean, it was um, Diane Devine from the Central States, and and... Uh, the lovely Eloise Mascoro from Dallas, the Von Erich's number one fan. She was an older lady, but um, but there was a number of them. A Candace Runnels, the ah, later Candy to Divine. be known as Candy Divine, made a few of the early conventions. During the Herb Abrams Blackjack Brawl, I think it was the ring announcer. He must have had her name on a card. And he said, here she is, Candy Divian. <laughs> well. Dick the Bruisers, a ring announcer for years, he had a good one the in the early years, up till about 1974-ish. And what was that guy's name? Gosh, but he had a very nice radio sound and voice. He pronounced everything well. He had some personality. And then they got this guy, and his name, his name was Bob Beach. And I don't know, maybe it was a political appointment by the commission or maybe just somebody's car dealer or good friend. But this guy, he didn't have 
the delivery of a ring announcer, nor apparently the eyesight or reading capability <laughs> of a normal human being. And he would butcher, and especially Bruiser had some of the, you know, the Hispanic talent like El Bracero, Jose Martinez, and, uh, you know, which would get mangled. And But the worst one ever, when Dominic Danucci came to work for Bruiser in Indianapolis, I think it was 1976, he introduced him the, on his first night in, in his debut as from whatever part of Italy, Demica Demunchi. <laughs> <laughs> and there were there wasn't any editing back then in television in those days. But anyway, we got shitty weather, Brian. Shitty weather all around. I'll have you know that this morning when I looked out the window for the first time here at the castle, it was six degrees. And we got more snow. We're not getting heavy snows. We do get like an inch or an inch and a half. And then it barely starts to go. And then here comes some more. And it's all slushy and it's cold. But how is Swami? How is Swami adapting to how big is a dog is Swami? How tall would you say Swami stands? I have no idea. He's about eight pounds, nine pounds. So he's maybe half a the foot size tall. Harley. Yeah, maybe a foot tall. I yeah. don't even know. So how is is Swami dealing with the snow? He kind of likes the snow. He kind of likes the opportunity to just pee and shit wherever he wants in the middle of the driveway or whatever. Places we can't complain about because we really don't want to be out there walking them either. So he's fine. But I mean, but the snow is as tall as he is in some cases then. Not over here right now, right? Now we have about four inches, four to six inches on the outer perimeter of the uh, storm. So he's okay. Okay, but now here's the thing. Harley, well, uh, depending on the size of the dog or the, the, the breed of the dog, Harley is bigger poundage, but I don't know that Harley stands any higher. She's probably longer, but her legs are only six inches long and she gets out in four inches of snow and her fur's dragging into, and then she likes to dig her nose in like Pacino and Scarface and come up with all the, <laughs> you know, so she ends up being an ice ball by the time she comes back in the house, but she's got the exact opposite problem. She doesn't, she can't find her spots because for Wait, one no, thing, same thing. No, he, he creates all new spots. Well, no, she, we've trained her too well. She won't create new spot. And not only that, she has a pee pad, an indoor pee pad. If it's thunderstorm and pouring rain, or for some reason in the middle of the night, an emergency strikes or whatever that gets inclement, one of the bathrooms, she has a pee pad that she's allowed to, to do her business, right? So it doesn't inconvenience us. But we've trained her too well. She's hopping up and down. I take her to the pee pad. She won't do it. She's running to the door. So now I got to put on another pair of sweatpants over the top of the sweatpants I've got on. Cause did I mention it's fucking six? And then I, I've, I'm wearing a, a nice fuzzy, soft, comfy San Francisco jacket that Stace got me the last time she was out there. But I put another coat on top of that. And then I put the, the light, but, uh, the, the material like the, the moon landing shit material to where it's, it's warm, even though it's a light jacket on top of that. So I got three coats on and then I slip on the snow boots that Stace just got me so that I don't wear my flip flops out in the snow. And then I open the garage door and I let her out and now she's looking around and I'm going, hurry up, just, just do whatever. I don't care. Like you, I don't care wherever. 
she can't figure out her spot. It's not there. And, and she steps off the walk into this dip that we've got in the ground, but the snow's level, so she immediately sinks almost all the way in like quicksand. And that startles her, and she flings shit everywhere. And then she's trying to find her spot, and then she walks, and now, here's another thing. Hank's been here, and I see Hank's tracks in the snow. Hank from next door. You remember Hank. And now she's tracking Hank. And now she's lost track of the business that she's supposed to be doing because she wants to know what Hank has done. So she walks around the back of the house following Hank, and now she sees where Hank has peed on the walk. You know how you can tell when a dog is peed in this kind of weather? I forgot Hank wasn't your neighbor. <laughs> so you just said he peed well, on Well, he, he lives next door. <laughs> but he, he, you see the walk with all the snow on it, and then there's a big round spot where it's all ice and no snow. The dog has peed on it. It's melted and it's froze over. So now she's all over. She's ice skating on the top of that. I'm like, would you get to your business? Much like the listeners are now saying to me, so finally she goes and she finds a spot and she turns around in numerous circles until she's burrowed her a, a, a area there. And then she takes big old shit. And then we come back. Now I've got to dry her off with the towel because she's an ice ball and I got to do all that. Then I got to take off my top coat and then the second coat and then the second pair of sweatpants and the snow boots and come back in. And by that point, I don't want to go outside anymore, but I know that this dog is going to have to piss and shit again shortly. So thankfully right now she's downstairs and her mother is taking care of that. For whatever reason, Stace can just let her out the door in the back and she'll just run and do something and come back in. But for me, it's, I've got to accompany her just to make sure nothing happens, I guess. I think dogs have their comfort person when it comes to going to the bathroom if i walk swami we have a routine he'll go one of my daughters is supposed to be walking swami all day she can't have this job anymore she comes in she says he didn't go yeah because you didn't walk you stood there and just <laughs> hoped he would do something suzanne will go right away because he's afraid of her so everyone has a different routine with swami so the the walking is more just standing and staring Rather than, than walking around. Well, even worse, if the kids have their phone in their hand and they're on TikTok or something, they're not even paying attention to the dog. Did he go? I think he did. What do you mean you think? <laughs> did he go? Did he pee in the grass? I don't know. I was on TikTok. I was on FaceTime. Then you shouldn't have been walking the dog with your phone. I actually go and observe the poop just to make sure there's nothing wrong. You should do. You should always do that with your dog. You mean you watch him poop, or after the fact you go? No, there I, and examine... I no, I I keep a respectful distance because she does. She doesn't like to be crowded when she's pooping. She'll just pee anywhere, but when she's pooping, she goes over and she does her circles and everything. And I actually I stand there with my hands in my pockets and I kind of look away at one of the trees or whatever so that she can see that I'm not paying attention. It helps speed her up a little bit. I do the but same then, thing. <laughs> I don't yeah. feel like such an idiot anymore. I do the same thing. I'm not watching you. Do your thing, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> I never felt like an idiot. That's only, that's, that's common courtesy. Uh, but then you got to go over and take a peek at it just to make sure that, you know, everything's okay. Not everyone, but every couple of days, just keep an eye on the poop. You don't like moving around or anything. You're just looking at it. No, I just observe it. I'm not fondling it. What the fuck? I'm not doing a goddamn chemical fucking analysis and breakdown i'm just 
eyeball and see if there's anything in there. It shouldn't be. Is there anything moving? Is anything discolored? Any sign of any, any bloody discharge? No, then you're good. You got good poop. Always keep an eye on the poop. I'll tell you, here's another thing to keep in good health. I've been telling you, well, I've told you, I don't know if I've said this on the show. I mentioned it. I've talked more to you about it, that I, I turned 60 a few months ago. And I've, I've, I went to the, because I haven't been to the doctor in a couple of years because I did not want to go to the doctor's office for a checkup when there was nothing wrong with me in the middle of a pandemic where all the sick people are. So that would be stupid. That would be a stupid thing for a stupid person to do. And I'm not a stupid person to be perfectly healthy and go where all the sick people congregate, right? But finally, a couple months ago, so, well, I've turned 60. I need to wrap myself up in a hazmat suit, go see the doctor. I told him, put me up on the rack. Give me any kind of test that I should have because I'm 60 years old. There's got to be something wrong with me, right? Because I mentioned this before. There's always, I'm, what the fuck can, is wrong with? There's got to be something, but nobody's finding it, right? So now the results are in, Brian. I got some bad news for everybody. I'm in perfect health. Again, they can't find anything wrong. I can hear now people are sobbing. They're breaking down into tears. They're calling loved ones to try to commiserate. Cornette's healthy. There's nothing the matter with him that they can find. I need to lower my cholesterol five points. I'm not even a ribby. My cholesterol is, is four points high. And the, 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 because think about this. And, and now I've realized more than ever that it's not, it's not lifestyle. It's not personal habits. It's your exposure to other human organisms that determines your health or lack thereof. Right? Think about this. For 40 years in the wrestling business, from the time I was a mid-teenager, erratic sleep patterns, coming in anywhere from midnight to four or five in the morning after shows, sleeping the next day till an hour till you before you have to get up and leave again to get in the car to go somewhere, sometimes going for days with very little sleep, and then other times binge sleeping. Even just a few years ago, I was talking to you about my trips and travails on these trips to the Northeast or the Midwest or whatever, binge eating. Cause you know, you go 18 hours stuck in these buildings, you get out at three o'clock in the morning, eating microwave cheeseburgers in the hotel room, right? Stress, catching colds. Oh, I'm sick. Can't talk. I'm snotty. I feel like shit. I've, I've done announcing and blown my voice out. It wasn't the wrestling business, Brian. It was the human race. Since I have withdrawn from all of these things and have not been exposed to these people, my weight is 195 pounds. It hadn't fluctuated five pounds in the past two years. I have not had one cold. For the first time in my life, I sleep regularly eight to nine hours a night, 9 p.m. to 6 a.m., I've had all, they gave me an EKG, the heart's fine. I've had that 
uh, treadmill stress test. I've told this story my last year working for Ring of Honor. And I was getting the chest pains and a tightness. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to have a heart attack. And they put me on the treadmill and do the thing. And, and they said, no, you don't have any blockages. I said, what's the matter? They said, you're a fucking fat fuck and you're stressed out. And remember, every five years, I would go on a diet and lose 40 or 50 pounds. But then it would be necessary again five years later because I'd gained all that back. And I've I've had cameras shoved down my throat. I've had the 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 lung scan. I've had the blood work. I've had all my vaccinations. Except well, except for that, uh, I don't think I'm going to get tetanus or diphtheria. I haven't got to that one yet. And I got a colonoscopy coming up, but I'm not worried about that because I had one before when I turned fifty, and they all oh, your they. So you got the cleanest looking asshole we've ever seen. It's like you've had a fire hose in there on a regular basis, just blowing all the shit out. So I'm a, I'm just, I'm sorry to say I'm letting a lot of people down, Brian, but I'm, they can't find anything wrong with me. So apparently I'm going to be around for a while. I was around you in the 90s. Do you think the lesson coming out of this is no matter what anyone tells you in your 20s and 30s and even 40s, Eat whatever you want. Just do whatever you want. It, I was around you. You well, had the I worst mean, diet of anyone I've ever seen. I don't want to say do whatever you want because, you know, people are, they're inventing new things these days. But yes, you realize for, you didn't even see me on the road with the Midnight Express. I spent in Louisiana. I guarantee you I had dinner at least 80 times at a gas station over the course of the year we were in fucking Mid-South. We... Um, I, 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 I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm embarrassed by my riches, but, um, that's the secret. Stay away from the human race. I've had the best two years of uninterrupted good health of my life over the past two years. And, uh, and I don't even get mad at people. People think I get mad at the idiots on the wrestling shows. No, I shake my head. I'm often embarrassed. And in some cases, I'm indignant. But I don't really get really good and mad like I used to at people that I would be in front of in person that would do shenanigans and tomfoolery. But um, I'll keep you apprised on the on the colonoscopy when they were scheduling that, when that comes up but we'll keep our fingers crossed on that did did i ever tell you the story of i guess i i can tell this because this is not embarrassing to this in the individual that told me the story this is embarrassing to the medical staff that were performing the procedure on said individual but around the time i had my first one for whatever reason i was talking to steve austin and medical shit comes up with guys that are, you know, 50 or nearabouts or whatever. And the colonoscopy thing came up and Austin told me they gave him one. It had not been very long before this conversation took place. And I did, Brian, do you even know the procedure? Am I just mystifying everybody here now? They're like, what the fuck? Everybody knows what this is, right? I'm pretty sure people know what it is. And in, in the last 
I don't know, 15, 20 years, we've even seen people on TV, like Katie Kirk, I think, got one live on the air on the Today Show one. Oh, gee, well, I don't, you know, it was like South Park when they shoved Kenny up the teachers or the bus drivers. Nevertheless, so the point is they, they put you to sleep to do this because they're taking a camera on a long, thin apparatus of some description. I don't know, I was asleep, right? And they and they stick it up, you know, the the your old sphincter there, and they and they look around to see if there's anything that shouldn't be in there. But they put you to sleep to do this because I get I get in certain places in Germany you can be awake and they can help you out with this. I think, but it's probably not medically approved. It's just more of a talented, you know, amateur. But they gave Austin his, and he woke up. On the fucking table with the gimmick in his ass. And they're like, oh, shit, shit, shit. And they gave him the, you know, and they, they're monitoring you. And they came, but he was, he came around and, and they put him back down. <laughs> I guess not, that's not the terminology, but whatever the terminology is, they, they fixed the situation. And that's when Steve Austin found out the colonoscopy was just a rib by JBL. No, it's no, it, it, there was no truth to the rumor that JBL had the mask on and was the doctor. No, it was an actual legitimate procedure going on. But the, so afterwards, obviously they remarked on this happening and he said, doc, I'm one of the boys. Give me the, the, the good shit. Right. You know, cause he's, when you think about it, I guess they don't have many people of that size and constitution and et cetera. They're usually given some, you know, 60-year-old CPA or formerly fat wrestling manager. I, I snoozed through the whole thing. I woke up and was not, not aware of anything going on. But, uh, but anyway, I don't mean to embarrass Steve with that one, but hey, I'm one of the boys. Give me the good shit. Speaking of giving me the good shit, thank you. Charlie from Starkville, Mississippi, sent me a belated Christmas present. I'm not going to embarrass him further by fawning over what it was, but I appreciate it. But you see, Brian, these uh, these alliances that you've been forming, whatever this under-the-table deal you've had with Charlie on your show, The drive Through. well, I want you to – he's playing both sides here. He, he – He's he's intending on staying a, a personality with the program in one way or another. Just watch out for that. We'll see what happens, Charlie. We'll see how many questions get asked here on The Experience, the show you favor, it appears. Well, we didn't say he favored it, but it would only be a natural emotion because, after all, it's my show. But anyway, I have some other listener emails and letters. Would you care to hear them? Because the the people the people have been talking lately, and I've actually had time to Go through and clean this stuff up and listen, uh, read the emails. Actually, the first one is not an email, Brian, I'll have you know. It is a letter. Jake, not from State Farm, but just Jake, wrote me a letter and sent it to the post office box in handwriting, signed it your pal, the way that people were meant to communicate before all this sorcery on the internet started out. That's why I'm reading his first. Hey, Jim, I love your podcasts and your look at pro wrestling. It's unfortunate that people have turned into such cunts. Good pro wrestling will hook anyone, but some of the shit, if someone came in the room and saw me watching, I'd be embarrassed. But 
I guess that's where we're at in the whole deal. Your pal, Jake. Jake, he started off. He started off. He was going to blister some people and then he was philosophical. Well, I guess that's just where we're at in the whole deal. Thank you, Jake. I appreciate it. Um, this one is from uh, the title of the email got my attention. Also, because now I'm getting some subject titles on the emails because Hotchkiss has done some work. But this is from Justin, and the title is Hooking in Cleveland for Funyuns. Brian, could this be a maybe a segment of uh, Tosh.0 where I give you the title and you try to figure out what the fucking video is about? Hooking in Cleveland for Funyuns. I'm curious to find out what this is. All righty. Hello, Jim and Brian. See, that's why I brought you into this, because he spoke to you, too. Tony Khan is at it again. Last night at beach break, he promised that if we hung out till the very end of the show, he'd have a surprise for us that would, quote, unquote, break the internet. Dark started taping at 7 o'clock. Dynamite was 8 to 10. Then Rampage finished taping at almost 11.40 p.m. My God. I was fucking exhausted, but there's a surprise to come, right? What could it be? Tony rushes out in his altered state. What does he mean by that? And brings Hook out, dressed in street clothes, wearing a jacket and backpack, and eating a fucking bag of Funyuns. He gave one to Jungle Boy, then turned and left after 10 seconds. What the fuck gives? Signed, Justin in Cleveland, Ohio. Did we just, we just got a letter last week. Yeah. Somebody wrote and said, Tony said, hey, if we always give the people what we want, what they want, here's Hook. And Hook comes out and stands there while Tony talks about giving the people what they want. And then Hook turns around and leaves again. This time he's eating funny. Are they ribbing him? They're making him stay till the end. That's what the, they're instilling respect in the young fellow for the business. You know, that was Bill Watts's rule. A lot of promoters had that rule. All the guys on the card stay until the end of the show, until the show's over. And in a lot of cases, so the heels could be there to help if the heel in the main event got a had a hot finish and had a problem getting to the back, the other heels could run out and help him. For the young guys, it was so they would watch the matches and learn. Maybe it's a combination of it. Maybe... He's wanting Hook to stay so that the fans don't get upset and riot at how late they are and start kicking the shit out of the young wrestlers. And then Hook can run out and help them. Anyway, here's another one. Um, You know, one of our sponsors, one of our fine, upstanding sponsors, we have a, a just a bunch of them, just a plethora of them, but one of them, in one of their... Uh, announcements, we've asked the question, you know, what do you get when you type why is my into Google? And the answer, and you know, one of the top answers is why is my computer running slow? You remember that, Brian? I do. There are other answers, apparently, when you type that in, because Matthew, don't you see Matthew? Matthew writes, Mr. Cornette, far be it for me to question your fine sponsors. But when I typed, why is my into Google, 
my suggested searches were not anything about the speed of my computer. Well, see, you didn't you didn't look far enough down. It's in the top. We said in the top responses. We didn't say it's the top response. And it depends on your, what do the kids call them, Brian, the search engine? But nevertheless, Matthew continues, if I'm lying, I'm flying, and my feet have not left the ground. When I type, why is my, into Google, the first suggestion is, why is my poop green? The second suggestion is, why is my poop black? (laughs) Maybe we're finding out something about the average American or possibly the average person in the world. Uh, that are obsessed about the shade and color of, of their poop. The third, Matthew continues, the third is, why is my eye twitching? What? Really? That's the third one? Possibly they got too close to the black and green poop. <laughs> and the fourth is, why is my pee cloudy? It isn't. You just can't see well because your eyes twitching from getting too close to the green and black poop. Uh, Matthew continues, I have the screen capture to prove all of this. Does that mean a screen capture of the black poop and the green poop and the cloudy pee or just the... No, no, just the search. Yeah. Yeah, the search. Clearly, Google knew I had been watching both Monday Night Raw and AEW Dynamite this week and that I needed help. Kindest regards to you and your newest former sponsor, Matthew. Well, thank thank you, Matthew. The poop green, the poop black. It is a weird thing to stipulate. You know, why don't you put, why is mine your search engine if you don't know for sure that's exactly what's going to come up? And, and, you know, and, and, and blue wasn't there. Have you, you know, the first time that this happened, I was quite young, but the blue poop, you've had the blue poop. After I had blue ices, yes. Well, birthday cake is where I was going. I guess that's one of those northern things. They put food coloring in the ice up there, don't they? Boy, that's thrilling. Italian ices are one of the greatest things ever invented. Yeah, but it don't hang on to a 12-inch fucking two-layer fucking birthday cake with buttercream icing, including plenty of blue food coloring, and you eat that dad with a knife and fork all to your neck all by yourself, and you'll shit blue for about three days. And it's it's a little it's a little smeary, too. You could finger paint with that shit by the time. It's got to be the buttercream frosting. Oh, that's the best kind. Did I ever tell you the story? <laughs> when Jim Ross turned my piss red? I have no idea what you're talking about, no. Well... For whatever, I know what it was, because you remember the story of when J.R. had passed, he told this publicly, he passed a kidney stone during the, was it, wasn't it the Great American Bash pay-per-view? It was one of the pay-per-views in Baltimore at the arena. He, during a pre-tape segment, he ran to the back and pissed out, and I've never never done this, but apparently it is the last thing from comfortable, pissed out his kidney stone or whatever. And fucking off, off he went right back to the show. And well, this was in the WWF. This was like 1996. This was a few years later, but apparently he had these, these pills that he'd been prescribed. If he, if he had a urinary tract, any issue or whatever, I can't remember what the specific, it's been almost 30 years, but the point is 
I had mentioned to him, I said, God damn. I said, I got a little fucking sting going on when I'm pissing. I hope I'm not getting some kind of urinary tract infection. And he's, well, here, I got these gimmicks for that, right? It'll prevent you from having that. It's And it's apparently something to do with cranberry juice is good for this, right? The, the cranberry extract or whatever, I don't fucking know. But long story short, he said, hey, well, okay, I'll take one of those. And I'm continuing on about my day in the building. We're at Raw. This has been after the production meeting. And a, a few minutes later, I go in to take a piss. And goddamn, I'm pissing. It's red. I think, holy shit. I'm, I'm bleeding something. What the fuck? Oh, my God. And I'm fucking panicked, right? Because I've already mentioned that I'm medical phobic. And now I think I'm bleeding to death through my dick. And I fucking, I got to find JR. I got, because I think the pill, the pill. I got to find JR. <laughs> and I got, JR is in fucking Vince's office. <laughs> And I, I got to open the door and they look up and I said, JR, I don't need anything. If you can just answer one question. Cause if you, if, if it's no, I need to go to the hospital now. Did that pill you gave me would have turned my piss red? And he said, Oh, didn't I say anything about that? I said, no, you didn't goddamn say anything <laughs> about that. Then it was fine. Vince was there for this whole conversation. Well, it wasn't anything unusual. <laughs> he just looked back down at his book. <clears throat> anyway, I have one more email. This was a, a brought a, a, a tickle to my tainted heart. Uh, this is from Gary uh, from El Paso, Texas. And Gary wrote, my cousin was a delivery driver for Domino's Pizza in the 80s. He had a delivery for 12 pizzas of assorted varieties and toppings to the El Paso Marriott. He said he took this late order of 12 pizzas, was expecting to deliver these to a hotel party of some sort, and he knocks on the door, and the person that answered the door was none other than the great Bobby the Brain Heenan. And towering behind him was none other than Andre the Giant. He said they were both very polite. They left him a generous tip. I don't know how much it was, but I'm assuming $20 to $50 in the late 80s would have been considered generous. I think you're probably more on the track of $20 there. $50 would have, I think Bobby would have snatched it from Andre and slipped it back in his own pocket. He also mentioned that it appeared to be just the brain and Andre in the room and he saw no sign of anybody else. How many of these pizzas do you think Andre ate out of the 12? Do you think the brain polished off one himself? How much would a generous tip from the brain and Andre have looked like in your opinion? Again, I think probably $20 was more on the, uh, the order there, uh, but yes, Bobby, of course could eat. And, and I would eat many nights an entire pizza. Not like it's a goddamn, you know, hard thing to do, but the other 11, Brian, I would have to think, Andre could certainly go through, what, eight, nine? Maybe he got a couple of extra for breakfast in the morning. Didn't say what size pizza. Domino's has different sizes of the pizzas. Well, I don't think they're going to fuck around with any, you know, personal pan pizza or anything. They were probably either large or extra large. And naturally, Andre eats the crust, you would say. 
right? Well, no, I, I don't. Have you seen it? You've seen pictures of Andre's teeth. Maybe they wouldn't like the crust anyway. But if, if he might be a member of the pizza bones fraternity that eats all the juicy goodness of the toppings and then leaves the dry, crispy, stale bread for the pizza bones. Interesting. So your fraternity is named after what you won't eat. The fraternity of the pizza boners. The pizza boners. Yeah, there you go. The pizza boners. We'll fuck that pizza up. You certainly uh, will. You're certainly ruining that pizza. But no, it, it, it's not. I can see Andre, you know, say, I, Yokozuna could go through. We've talked about this, the, the bucket of chicken or whatever container the chicken came in. If there was not a KFC within distance, it, it would be a large i mean uh, the what is the big uh popeyes the 12 piece or the 15 piece it'd be a big order of chicken regardless and we've we've told a story about klondike bill who is still to this day uh on the wall at the big texan steak ranch in amarillo for not only eating the 72 ounce steak and the whole dinner with the baked potato and the roll and the shrimp cocktail and the salad but then ordering another one and eating that too right afterwards. So there's been a lot of the boys that can can put away the groceries, as they used to say. If a heel was going to order a big dinner for some baby faces who may be hanging out, <laughs> would they hide if a delivery man came? Well, now, oh, oh, so you mean they're all together? They're all in the hotel. It's the same hotel. They're in El Paso. They're on the road with the WWF. Andre's hanging out with Heenan. I don't know who else is in their little group. Have a few beers or a case or two, a pizza or eight. If anyone else was there who shouldn't have been there, how do you deal with a delivery guy coming? Well, there you go. That uh, Honestly, I was going to say, well, probably the WWF guys didn't give a shit, but since it was Bobby and Andre, they probably did. The guy just go back to your own rooms. I mean, we've, you know, you've done that a bunch. If, uh, if one of the baby faces wanted to come to a heels room or vice versa, you get a pizza or whatever, the guy who's going to get the pizza and whoever's room it is that the pizza is going to call and get the pizza and then call the other guy's room and say, Hey, the pizza will be here in 20 minutes or whatever the fuck, or the pizza's here. Come on back. Whatever. That's not hard to, are you saying they were hiding the rest of the, the party there that was going to eat all those pizzas? Yeah, maybe Bret Hart's under the bed. Maybe someone's in the closet. <laughs> someone's in the shower. Who knows? Maybe they're hiding, ready to scare Bobby Eaton. Bobby Eaton? Bobby, yeah. Remember I told you that story when the Little Rock Holiday Inn had a front door and a back door to the rooms because you could go in through the back hallway or you could go in through the big, what the, not the, bre what do they call them? The, uh, God damn it, not the planetarium, the dome, the... Uh, <laughs> You know, you you're trying, I have no idea what you're, you're enjoying <laughs> the big open area in the hotels with the big high, the atrium atrium. There you go. <laughs> God damn. You had a door in the front, a door in the back and somewhere or another. I think Carl Fergie was used as a distraction also, but Dennis got Bobby's key and managed to go in the back door while Bobby was talking to the people at the front door and he hid in his bathroom, which was in the back of the room in the tub behind the shower curtain until Bobby came in to take a piss where he'd go, ooga booga booga and scare the fuck out of Bobby. 
And this was after Bobby had the issue where he walked in on a couple in bed and was scared of rooms. Oh, that was years earlier in Bobby, early in Bobby's career. Yeah, he was already scared of hotel rooms to begin with when he checked into them. But you could imagine when he heard Ooga Booga Booga coming from the shower behind the curtain. <laughs> but he, where were we? Where were we going with that? Oh, guys eating a lot. Guys eat a lot. Yeah, a lot of the guys eat a lot. That's what happened. All right. All righty. Anyway, speaking of eating a lot, you're gonna you're gonna just chew this up and swallow it right down, folks. It's time again, that time of year. The St. Valentine's Day Massa Cameos are going on sale Sunday, February the 6th at noon Eastern time. I've already gotten with Hotchkiss. We've set aside two recording days that following week to fulfill these. So we're going to take, we're not limiting the number. We're basically going to take all that we can fill in the two days that week. So they usually go quickly uh, right off the bat, so I would advise you to get in early, but you can go to jimcornett.com and click on the button on the homepage that says Cameos, and it takes you right to my page. And again, that's Sunday, February 6th at noon Eastern. Give your sweetie a kissin' or a cussin', whichever they deserve, for Valentine's Day with these, I, I would I would go ahead and say widely praised, highly praised. The four-star reviews are five. However many is the best. I guess they're on the, the Meltzer scale. You get five stars. Well, now, now he's got seven. So it's a five-star ratings. I got a bunch of five-star ratings. They're highly rated. And if oh, I learned please. to speak Anybody Japanese, could get a five-star rating nowadays. It's well, now, if I learned to speak Japanese, go to the Tokyo Dome, I'd get seven stars for the cameos. And also, by the way, we've been praising, but that again, Sunday, February 6th, noon Eastern cameos. They'll be on sale for all the people who cuss me when they can't get one. And then I advertise these things and then they, they miss it and then they yell at me again. But also on the shiny new jimcornet.com, we neglect to mention this a lot. There's a Patreon button on the homepage. You can click on the Patreon page. Because I've had people on Twitter still, even though we say this a lot. How do I get on that there Patreon thing? Um, where you can listen to all of the experiences and drive-throughs from issue number one, the, the the origin stories, all the way through. Where are we at now, Brian? 2017, 2018? About to be 2018, yes. About to be... T see, we... They say we're behind the times. We're only four years behind the times. Uh, it's about to be 2018. I can't wait to celebrate. Uh, but yes, you can just click on the Patreon button. It takes you right to the Patreon page at jimcornet.com. It'll do everything. We get a lot of people asking about the Patreon. My other favorite is, how do I send in a question for the drive-thru? Maybe listen to the drive-thru at the beginning of every single question, and you would know. Well, now, but now, see, now, how do I keep an idiot in suspense? I'll tell you tomorrow. Now you've left that dangling, and for the people who are not currently listening to the drive-thru, they're going to stop listening to this show and go listen to the drive-thru to try to find out how to send a question in. Just tell them. CornyDriveThru at gmail.com. See, was that hard? No. Of course it was. Uh, speaking of hard, also, this came up. Uh, we were talking earlier, and it was a clip on YouTube also that's been highly viewed about Robert Gibson's physical attribute about 
his little Johnson, his little brother there, that he could wrap it around his wrist like a wristwatch and check the time. I've also been reminded uh, by somebody who apparently knows him, at least on a passing basis, that he can also put his dick in a top wrist lock. Hello? I don't know what to say to that. You know what I'm talking about, the old, the old top wrist lock deal. He t- takes the head and puts it over the right arm and grabs his left wrist. It, it's, it's amazing. Anyway, right. speaking of my slick and fancy <laughs> new website, yeah. <laughs> I have talked to Hotchkiss also, and uh, Fanny and Felcher are raring to go, and they've got some equipment put together, and the Cornette's Collectibles store at jimcornette.com will be reopening on Saturday, February the 12th. If you've been waiting on getting T-shirts, wait no longer. They are will be on sale. Autographed pictures, Cult of Cornette membership certificates, the classic wrestling DVDs, and signed copies of Behind the Curtain, my soon-to-be award-winning, soon as somebody nominates it, graphic novel that's sold so many copies. Uh, they will all be on sale on Saturday, February 12th, and once again, we said there's no reason to get jumpy here. Nothing of those things are going to sell out and be gone forever immediately. So you don't need to slam poor Fanny and Felcher. But I would advise you and encourage you over the last couple of weeks of the month of February, if you've been wanting to get that T-shirt or the certificate or whatever, jump in. Now's the time. You will have a very short waiting period. We're going to be turning these things around quickly with all the help, hopefully. And I know everybody said, what about the action figures? There's some of the Christmas variant action figure that are left. And those, I think 300 and something, will be going on sale sometime in early March so that we can make sure that the people that missed out on those get a chance at those. And then there's going to be some big action figure news coming uh, around that same time also for the future. This year is going to be a whole lot of fun. So there's all the plugs, Brian. Did we get everything in? I think so. An exciting period of time. A lot of things happening with the Cult of Cornette. And a lot of things are happening with the the Cult of Rousey. I, that doesn't make any sense. That was a horrible transition. But a lot of things are happening in the WWE with R- Ravishing Ronda Rousey is returning. Is this what I'm hearing? This is what we are all hearing. And, of course, the Royal Rumble is tonight as we are recording. But everyone right now is expecting the return of Ronda Rousey. And, well, uh, obviously she's not going to wrestle on the Rumble. Ronda, I, I, I think that's a lot of people expect her to be a surprise entrant in the rumble. Oh, you think she's going to enter the rumble? I see. I would, uh, I would think that would be an example of Vince McMahon, as he used to say, kayfabing ourselves, but do they care how many people watch these shows anymore? I mean, really, is there any way to quantify? They just uh, sent out a, a statement that, uh, adding the WWE Network got Peacock like an extra million subscribers, but uh, the, all those million people don't watch these shows. But I think barely get a million people to watch some of their television shows, much less the the premium live events. So in the old days, the old Vince McMahon was a, a, a star of Ronda Rousey's caliber as a surprise. We're kayfabing ourselves, advertise her ahead of time. 
But if Ronda Rousey's returning and wrestling at the Royal Rumble, well, that's just swell. Uh, I saw something that said it. she'll probably be around for a year. Um, it's not just a thing to come in, do WrestleMania, and leave. But at the same time, it might not be another long-term deal because she has livestock to raise and things, doesn't she? Well, actually, she took time off to have a kid. Well, yeah, but her, she raises livestock on a more ongoing basis. She has more livestock than she has children. Well, she <laughs> I don't want to compare raising livestock to raising children, but I'm sure she's, on a daily basis, raising her child as a mother. Not just well, no, she's, she's got a farm and they got the livestock. Hey, it's complicated raising pigs and cattle and sheep and burros and orangutans and llamas, alpacas and things like that. We'll know if that's true. If she shows up dressed like Brock. <laughs> Maybe they've been off in Saskatoon together, uh, but they need her. It, let's be serious now. Ronda Rousey. Brought a ton of eyeballs the last time. She had a, the most spectacular debut in pro wrestling history, even though obviously it was <laughs> done by Triple H. There's another thing he did. He gave put together Rousey's debut, which was the greatest debut in wrestling history. Even it, she hung with it. She didn't make any mistakes. Um, she had a short, uh, you know, run. Uh, as as relates to her name value, it, as she left to go have a kid, it wasn't like they ran out of things for her to do and that people got tired of her. So she kind of left on top, as I recall. I don't I don't remember her doing any jobs to Nikki Ass or anybody on the way out, did she? I don't believe so, but I think that when she did take time off or did leave, she may not have been as popular within the company as she had been when she first got there, and she may not have enjoyed it the way she did when she first got there. And remember, we did hear a promo, a promo, an interview. Yeah. I don't know, maybe two years ago, Nia Jax and a couple of the other women performers were talking on a pandemic-era podcast, talking about Ronda Rousey kind of being a bully. So well, it'll be well, interesting. Uh, also, she made, and I don't remember the exact verbiage, but she made a derogatory statement about the business at one point on Twitter and, and the credibility of, or the legitimacy of the business. And then, uh, I think later made comments like, Oh, I was just working the marks or whatever. Um, but the point is she's a celebrity and she will put attention and eyeballs. I don't know if you could even say she'll sell tickets anymore because do they even sell, you know, they sell the same amount of tickets just because it's WrestleMania or just because it's the Royal Rumble. But may maybe this is what they need an attraction. They have so few. And, you know, isn't it funny, Brian, that the biggest gate box office attractions in wrestling over the past few years on the male and female side have been the people that the fans know are actually legitimate instead of a bunch of fucking entertainers, Ronda Rousey and Brock Lesnar. Hmm. It's almost like there's something to that. Hey, we got to believe that they're tough kind of business. What do you think? I think there's something to that. And to what you said earlier about how they do need her right now, 
when you look at all the women there, and there are women who are clearly top stars in WWE and women who either they try to push who don't get to that level or just aren't there right now, you're dropping another main event woman into the mix. What does that do to everyone who's already there? What does that do? You have Charlotte, you have Becky Lynch, you have Sasha Banks just returned. I guess Bailey's going to return at some point. And now you have Ronda Rousey back in the mix. And isn't it a shame that you can't mention Rhea Ripley along with all of those other names because she's... That's their fault. She's babysitting her delinquent little cousin in a pajama outfit or whatever. Um, But yeah, they need her because they need names. They need stars. They need... She can get... Uh, especially her return to free television, wherever that may be, Raw, SmackDown, if they promote it, if they don't just announce it on Twitter like Tony did last week, the day before his television show, they'll get some numbers, they'll get some a little bump off of that, and they need that. I mean, as we've mentioned, you know, they've done everything that they can possibly do over the last several months in the WWE to hand Tony Khan the victory in the wrestling war. He refuses to take advantage (laughs) of most of it. So now maybe they're, well, fuck him then. Maybe we'll just fucking beat him now. So they'll bring back Ronda Rousey. I I mean, it's, they'll either screw this up or some way or another. I mean, I've, I've never seen, as we've mentioned, two sides in a fight that are so often determined to put the other side over. Do you put the belt on Rhonda? Does she need the belt? No. Um, Is it good for the company to have the belt on her? Well, that may be a different thing. Uh, If they can parade her around like they did Brock, Brock, former UFC champion. Now he's the world's champion or the wrestling champion, whatever. Media, public appearances, press releases, or press appearances, things like that. And the only thing is, <sighs> I don't know, especially now she's been off for two years or whatever. Has she been training? Has she stayed up on this? Is she? Is she's not going to have a mixed tag where you've got Triple H. Who the fuck was it? Fucking Angle? Yeah. It was Angle, yes. You had Triple H and Kurt Angle. Is she going to be able to go out there and have title matches with, if she's the champion with the number one contender? Well, I guess just make, keep them short, I guess. Fuck it. Now I'm talking myself into it. Yeah, put the fucking belt on her. Because none of the other girls besides Charlotte, Becky, and Sasha mean anything, and they've all three had the fucking belt. So shake it up a little bit. Yeah, bring her back, put the fucking thing on her. As long as you make sure you've got a way to get it off of her and she doesn't mind dropping it, because then you'd have to bring fucking Mildred Burke back to fucking shoot with her if she didn't want to. But, you know, I guess, Brian, we shouldn't question whether Rhonda's, you know, going to have ring rust or whatever, because after all, she's she's a multi-millionaire sports celebrity. She's made a ton of money. I'm sure they paid her a nickel 95 or two in the wwe she can afford out there what what do they call it browsy acres she can afford with all the livestock and the kids and everything is that really what they call it that's really what that's what she's on the farm yes she married travis brown 
How do you know Brown so much about her farm Browsy life? Acres. I've never yes. heard any of this. I don't know. Oh, yeah. She milks the goats and feeds the goats the milk that she milks from the goats and and the jello pudding and does all that stuff out at Browsy Acres. She's probably got enough money that she has installed her own training center. You know, a facility where she can keep in shape, maybe a ring where she can work out, but certainly workout equipment and all that stuff so that she can keep in peak optimum fitness. But that she's a major sports celebrity. She's a multimillionaire. The little folk, the normal folk, they can't do that. Well, maybe they can. Folks, if you want to work out at home, but you don't want to spend any money, well, if you don't want to spend any money, Take a rope out to a tree and tie it around there and tug on it because that's all you're going to get. But if you want the affordable way to get the workout equipment, the workout community, and an instructor's motivation right in the comfort and privacy of your own home, well, right now, I got the answer for you. Our friends at Echelon. That's, by the way, for those grammatically challenged, E-C-H-E-L-O-N, echelon, as in the upper echelon, because that's where these folks are in the upper echelon of fitness equipment. Echelon Fitness's fitness app provides you thousands of live and on-demand classes with great music from your favorite artists like Beethoven and Brahms and Bruce Springsteen. Whoa. And what? That's a bit of a jump. Well, I don't know. They said your favorite artist, a lot of people like Beethoven, a lot of people like Bruce Springsteen, a lot of people like the Strawberry Alarm Clock. They're they're all over the place. Anyway, you can work out anytime, day or night. As a matter of fact, sometimes they insist that you work out day and night. No. They're gonna they're gonna drive you to drop. They're no, gonna make no, you no, no, feel no. the burn. You work out of your own schedule, you choose when you work out. No, these fitness instructors, they get on that screen and they say, listen, you little worm, look at the state of you. You need to get moving. We're going to whip you into shape. And then they start cracking that whip and you get on that bike. There's no whip. You're going to be pedaling, but you're not going to be going anywhere because it's a stationary bike and it'll burn the fat off of you. Look at the cellulite ridden state of you. How about the smart <laughs> rowers? You're going to row until you wish you'd never come back to shore. They're going to make sure you stay on top what? of this shit, folks. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you what. You don't want to come the, back to shore. Interesting. No. <laughs> the auto just stay out there and take a, take a brick or a rocker and anchor with you. And the auto folding treadmill, sit the kids in the corner and let them watch this thing fold and unfold while you're over there sweating, pouring sweat while you, you reach your goals of being fit you're going to be so fit, you're going to drop over with a stroke. No, it's like, no, let's not say that. No, you will be healthy, and these are all devices and tools to help you stay healthy. Yes, because it's all about the health. Let's it's not make about this about health. anything else. Let's no, it's all about, about the health that you, that you attain when you climb the leaderboard at Echelon Fitness and cheer each other on. Of course, if you're a wise ass and you see somebody doing really well and you're not doing so good, you might want to tear them down. But give it your all one way or the other, even if you're being abusive, folks. Supportive, engaging, and fun is what the instructors are, but they're also strict, demanding, and potentially under investigation. 
But anyway, Echelon. No fitness, one's under investigation or potentially no, under gross. investigation. It, the investigation found nothing. There was no investigation. <laughs> Stop <laughs> it. What you, that's <laughs> what they're saying now. There was no investigation. Echelon Fitness's full range of affordable workout equipment, uh, along with around the clock classes for the family, including full body workout programs that keep you coming back. You will come back and come back and come back until they decide that you can leave. And one membership covers a family of five. So as we've mentioned, you you've only got one kid. Get busy. Right now, folks, for a limited time only, and this could close at any time, so break your neck to get on this, my listeners, get up to $650 off the MSRP. To get this exclusive discount, text the word DRIVE, D-R-I-V-E, to 81881. That's drive to 81881 to get up to $650 off the MSRP of many or most or possibly even all of these fine pieces of equipment that you will love to have in your home and that they will not come back and repossess unless you refuse to pay for them. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. All right. Well, we want to thank Echelon for being with us here today. A wonderful yeah. service. Yes, we want to thank them for the time they've spent with us and wish them well in their future <laughs> advertising buys. I got a I got a guest review here. Because you know a lot of times I review the wrestling programs or the wrestling events and I put my particular spin on things, but possibly sometimes that's not what the people think, right? So I decided I want the people to have their opera the people, Brian the cult of cornet listeners to have their opportunity to have their opinions heard about some of these shows. And it was a show that some people foolishly asked me if I was going to watch and review. And of course this was not going to happen, but Jacob here, Jacob from, uh, well, I guess he's from New York. He's from the New York area. He had to be somewhere around there. He doesn't say exactly where he's from. Probably doesn't want these people to track him down. But he went to the garbage championship wrestling event they had in 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 the city uh, here a week or two ago with the bank-addicted drug robber and the CEO of Moxley Plumbing and poor Briscoe's slumming. And he would you like to hear his review? Just some high points of the the events of that night. I will just say I obviously didn't watch this event, but I don't know if I've seen a worse reviewed big I say big events was on pay-per-view, a worse reviewed event like this in the observer. I was shocked at how negative even Dave was on this show. So yeah, I'd actually be curious to hear this review. Well, you know, the Hardly boys weren't on it, so he can be a nattering nabob of negativity if his buddies aren't there but it was the same flavor of stuff probably not even as good as they do it just the same the same whiff of taint you get from their their stylings but jacob writes on sunday night this past weekend garbage championship wrestling held their big show in the hammerstein ballroom i know you won't review it please don't put yourself through more misery than you already do with all of the wwe and aew i don't want to add to that so, I, oh, I watched the pay-per-view and have some notes for you. So he was not there in person. He's not from New York. I don't want to malign poor Jacob by accusing him of being from somewhere like that that he's not. 
but he did see the pay-per-view and after all that's where the big money's made right so here's his review lots of flippy stuff in early matches the ladder debacle was a bad train wreck jeff jarrett proved that he still has it and everyone else has no idea what they're doing i'd take jarrett on his worst day over anyone else on this card quite honestly I was really looking forward to seeing Jonathan Gresham, but he was pulled due to a COVID-related issue. I'll cut to the meat of the matter. Well, they did it. I didn't think they could, but they made me lose interest in the Briscoes versus FTR feud. Garbage Championship Wrestling booked the Briscoe brothers to lose to the bank-addicted drug robber and a bald, fat deathmatch fuck in under six fucking minutes. Under six fucking minutes. Let's go over why this happened. They obviously ran short on time. They had Jelly Nutella and Matt Cardona go 20 minutes, not including at least six to seven min minutes on entrances. That may have been honestly because Jelly couldn't find the ring. Plunder and furniture and bullshit and more bullshit. Run in after run in after run in. Who ran in? A midget. A big dumpy fat guy. Virgil, no, seriously, Virgil came to the ring with a Vince McMahon mask and the No Chance in Hell music, seriously. Then Brian well, hold Myers... On. Let, me, let me stop away. you there. Because I read something in The Observer, maybe it was Sean Waltman coming out to the DX music. Did they use WWE music on the televised pay-per-view? Oh, well, that is a good point. Uh, he says the No Chance in Hell music. So interesting. Uh, and paging Mr. McDevitt, Mr. Jerry McDevitt. Uh, but anyway, that wasn't all the run-ins because then Brian Myers, a la the old guy runs in in a black trench coat and biker helmet and spears someone's spot and then takes off his helmet. Oh, and X-Pac ran in too. <laughs> These run-ins were more of a copy of impact wrestling than a copy of WWE. Garbage fans were excited when this was added to traditional pay-per-view, but they proved that they can't control their talent when it comes to timing out a show at all. Moxley versus Homicide went 11 minutes with a flat finish. That was the semi-main event. The Briscoes put out an open challenge to any team. Big pop for the Briscoes. FTR chance. Will FTR come out? Nope. First out is the fat, bald, deathmatch guy who paid Onita to come to New Jersey and set his ass on fire. Then the bank-addicted drug robber. Big crazy brawl right off the bat. Maybe one or two false finishes. Gage pile drives a Briscoe through a door. Yes, a door. The wrestling company that sold out the Hammerstein Ballroom had doors used in their matches. They can't afford tables. Gage does his choke slam pin... One, two, three, match over. Under six minutes, your new GCW tag team champions, the drug-addicted, meth-mouthed bank robber and his fat, bald friend. How in the ever-loving French-fried titty fuck could a promoter fuck up the Briscoes? FTR wrestled the Rock and Roll Express Saturday, and the Briscoes got beat by glorified backyard deathmatch homeless-looking bums in under six minutes. I fucking hate when people try to play WWE and do big-time shows in big-time buildings. They fuck it up for us older fans who want something to believe in. The Briscoes and FTR are cutting heated promos, taking jabs at each other, had a pull-apart at the ROH show, 
and now they've shit the bed. If backyarders can beat the Briscoes in six minutes, then FTR should be able to beat them in one minute. Like Dusty Rhodes once said, don't do shit you don't know how to do. These indie companies should stay in their small rec centers and high school gyms and not try anything bigger that includes time restraints and having cards that make sense. I'm a disgruntled fan, and that's my opinion. Thank you, Jacob. Very astute observations from the... Maybe that's the thing. The people running Garbage Championship Wrestling... They ought to let some of the people in the seats run the company, and they ought to be occupying aforesaid seats. What do you think, Brian? I really don't know because I don't pay too much attention to that. Um, I did hear that Jeff Jarrett's match was especially awful, so it's interesting to hear him put over Jeff Jarrett in this review. But That's well, and, and there you go, because he probably had the only thing resembling a wrestling match where the heel tried to get heat and fuck up the fucking baby face and make the people well, mad. He was wrestling and, from what I read against a guy who tried to stick Marco stunts face into a dildo. Uh, well, you can't control stuff like that. <laughs> but the point I was trying to make was if the, if the, the crowd that goes to see shit like this actually sees professionals that know what they're doing, it doesn't compute. And they go, Oh, that match sucked. Nobody dove off the roof. Meltzer made it sound in the Observer like even the Moxley homicide match the crowd was dead for, for whatever reason. he The way Dave put it was he expected a loud Hammerstein crowd like we've seen for other shows, and it wasn't there for whatever reason. Well, again, that not only... It could be a reflection on the match they were seeing, or it could be a reflection on the matches they had seen. How much horse shit did they have to sit through to get to that point? Was it another one of these? Obviously, if they were bad on time, it was number one of these overly long, overly fucking train wreck indie shows. And then you get to the main events, the matches that allegedly sold the tickets with the talent that the people wanted to see the most. And they've got the least amount of time because these other marks on the undercard can't control themselves and think that they're important and people came to see them. And there's no person in charge, whether it be Tony Khan or whoever the fucking boss of champion garbage championship wrestling is. Nobody can tell them what to do because they don't know what to do themselves. And nobody is listening to those bosses anyway, because they're have no spine and they have no fucking balls and they, let the guys do whatever the fuck they want to do because they can't stop. And that's what you get. And people spend a lot of money and a lot of fucking time to put these things on and they fall to shit because of a lack of experience and planning aforehand. So there you go. And also, but I mean, the less time that they had for people to dive off ladders into barbed wire and broken glass and eat each other with light tubes or whatever the fuck else they do, the better. But still, you're going to sell the guy biting the head off the chicken at the county fair. Then don't fucking run all out of time with the fat lady and the, the bearded kid. And you don't have time to put the geek out there to bite the chicken off. From what I heard, they couldn't do the normal geek show because the New York State Athletic Commission said, no, the, none of this flies here in New York. Oh, golly. You mean they're an actual government entity enforcing the law saying, yeah, you people, what the fuck's the matter with you? Why do you want to do all this shit? 
None of this is related to wrestling or athletics or entertainment. <sighs> anyway, you know what they all need, Brian? What's that? A new line of work. Okay. That's what every single one of them needs. Do you think? So the bank-addicted drug robber, he gets out of prison. Instead of going back to what led him down that road to ruin this nasty deathmatch-type wrestling stuff, what if he'd have said, you know what? I can learn instead to code. Now, a guy like Nick Gage, with that bright look on his face and that beautiful mouthful of pearly white teeth, he's got such a great smile, and you can just see when he smiles and the, the brightness in his eyes, you, the intelligence in his face, it lights up. If he was building websites and learning to code on his own terms, by the way, he could do it on his own terms. He could walk into the bank that he robbed and he could sit down with his laptop and he could open it up and he could learn to code right there on his own. No, I think he's actually barred from that place. Well, folks, if you're not barred from any banks that you've robbed in the past, and you want to change your career, there's never been a better time to become a programmer. And with Code Academy, as we mentioned, you can learn to code on your own terms. As a matter of fact, you can decide what you pay these people. You can decide what you want to learn and what you don't want to learn. Sometimes you can tell the people at Code Academy to fuck off if they want to teach you something you're not interested in. Of course, then you'll wind up once again in the gutter somewhere in a sewer and robbing banks if you don't listen to your teachers, but nevertheless, Code Academy can help you reach your coding goals, whether you're starting from scratch, straight out of prison for robbing banks, or looking to advance from a dead-end job that you've already got. Your boss may not recognize your full potential, but Code Academy does, and that's why they want to recruit you into this army that they're building that's over 50 million people strong. This group of people from all around the world, all over the globe, are going to know these codes and know how to write them and know how to build these sites. And one day, this race of people called the Codinis will be running the world. They'll take over every government. They'll overthrow every form of authority. And you'll have to go to these Codinis to get anything done. Folks, you want to be one of these what? people. That's right. They're, I'm telling you, it's a secret society, and they're building it, Brian, right underneath our noses. The Code Academy people, they're going to be the new administrators of world order, and you can join them. Folks, you can learn the coding languages like Python and Hitamulsis and SQL and JavaScript, and, and that way, whether they assign you to an outpost in the Pacific or possibly... One Ooh. of the bunkers at one of the poles. Who's the assigning them? The head of Code Academy. We're not supposed to mention his name, but he'll tell you where to go. He'll put you where you're most useful, and then you can run that part of the world. So you may be running your own Pacific Island, possibly Pago Pago. But if you're not sure where to begin, Code Academy will point you in the right direction and say, go over there and wait for us. Get instant feedback, like, go now! Your code is tested as soon as you submit it. If nothing blows up, you'll know you're on the right track. And an interactive platform helps you learn by doing. At the same time, you'll be doing the bidding of our leader. Join the over 50 million people learning to code 
with Code Academy and see where coding can take you. And right now, folks, if you want to land your dream job in web development, programming, computer science, data science, and tons more, you can also get 15% off your Code Academy Pro membership when you go to codecademy.com and use the promo code EXPERIENCE. That's E-X-P-E-R-I-E-N-C-E. But if you can't spell experience, you probably can't take over the world. Codecademy.com, 15% off. The best way to learn to code. C-O-D-E-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Codecademy.com, promo code experience. That's right. I don't know anything about some overlord or some leader there. That We're we not to supposed to mention who it is, his name, anything about him, but he I don't know who it one. is. I don't know the well, name. Good. I don't know anything. It's, it's safer for your own benefit that you don't know. You're on a need-to-know basis. When it's time and he gives the word, shit's going to go down. All right. Anyway, so we got, uh, we got some information here. I was alerted to the fact on Twitter that it was it's an anniversary this weekend of one of the big Smoky Mountain Wrestling events, one of my favorites that we did, uh, the Super Saturday Night Fever show, uh, January 20th. The people will hear this a couple of days late, but January 28th, 1995 was this, uh, this event, and somebody alerted me that it was the anniversary on Twitter, as I mentioned, and I looked back at the card and some of the details, and this is... A kind of a, a good example of the territory wrestling payoff system and just the booking of the buildings, the, all the old territory stuff that the listeners seem to like the behind-the-scenes business aspect of. This kind of illustrates a good one. And I also have, which we're going to compare it to, a another one of the payoff sheets from... Paul Bosch's Houston wrestling that had been floating around came out from the Bosch estate sale with the, uh, the payments to the wrestlers and you know what the gross was for the, the event and all that stuff. And they're 15 years apart, but it's kind of interesting because Houston was in the, the peak of the territory days in 1980. The Smoky mountain show was in 1995 when there were almost no territories and we were trying to bring one back, but it's kind of, uh, interesting to compare, even though I was not in any way trying to to mimic the Houston card or or do anything the same as we'll talk about it. It's kind of comparable because this was territory wrestling, and uh, the reason why that we were doing. By the way, Super Saturday Night Fever comes from the next day on Sunday was the Super Bowl that year, January twenty ninth. And I will give some explanation as to the Knoxville wrestling schedule. For years, Friday night was Knoxville wrestling night. Every Friday night when it was a weekly territory, except during football season. Because in East Tennessee, and we've mentioned this, University of Tennessee football is the biggest drawing sports or entertainment event in the state of Tennessee without question as an ongoing enterprise, they might do a standalone, you know, concert festival somewhere that draws more people, but for a, an ongoing event, 
UT football is it. And high school football in that part of the country is popular also. So in East Tennessee, Knoxville, whatever territory or whatever promotion was running the territory during football season would switch to Sunday afternoon shows to stay away from high school and college football during that time of the year. And this is something that not only... I mean, you know, Knoxville had strange wrestling traditions. We've talked about them in in the 60s and 70s, well, back in the 50s. It was the only city in the country that eight months out of the year, their weekly wrestling event, its primary location was outdoors at Chilhowee Park. That was completely unique in, in the wrestling business in the country. And they had the, and so when we started running Smoky Mountain, even the Coliseum folks, because they'd been there, for 20 years they said oh we always switch during football season to sundays because of football and before that they did it from chilhowee park so that led to issues with trying to get the exact right dates and i know a lot of the promoters now they go well if you want to run a town and you know a building you want to run You go to that building, you see what their open dates are, you figure out a date a few months in advance, and you check and make sure you can get the talent you want on that date because you're going to have to fly somebody in if it's any show of any kind of size, flying some name wrestlers, blah, blah, blah. And you plan that, and then you've got your dates you want that you can get talent on, and you promote it for a few months. In the territories, you were literally running the same town, the same building every week, every two weeks or once a month, depending on what your schedule was. The big northeastern uh, territories where they ran the towns once a month, all the smaller southern territories ran once a week. Well, we were kind of a stuck between a rock and a hard place. We were running our major towns once a month. I've thought in hindsight that we probably could have done the same or a little bit better if we run if we ran Knoxville every two weeks because we'd get the same base fans, but nevertheless. So once a month, and Brian, this is another thing that I learned before I even got in the wrestling business. I learned this from Christine Jarrett. And again, people are going to scoff at this, but this is the way it was done. In the territory days, if you had a big show, that you really, you know, you had a lot invested in or you had big names coming in or the champion or whatever, or if you had a new spot show town, it's the first time you'd been there, whatever, you wanted to stagger your bigger events toward the first of the month. You didn't want to run, even if you ran a weekly territory, and that meant four weeks every month and some weeks five times, you would want your bigger events at the beginning of the month. And Brian, you know why, or do you spill it? Why do you want your events at the beginning of the month? Because people get paid. Exactly. Not only they get paid the first and the 15th, but also the social security checks and the welfare checks came out at the beginning of the month. And that was in large part, a lot of the base of the territories the the fans were when they got the checks, that's when they had money to spend. They'd either go to the matches within the next day or two, or they might buy the advance tickets. But again, that's why, you know, uh, the, the people who booked the towns for these territories, they, they especially paid attention and loaded up the first of the month. 
because people had more money to spend. So, but then we got off kilter, and I'll give you an example. In 1993 in Smoky Mountain, we ran Thanksgiving and did very well and ran Christmas and did very well. But we didn't want to come back in January. You can't come back if you run once a month. You don't want to come back with a big show again a week or two later. You've just been there. But we didn't want to wait till the end of the month or we didn't want to run the end of the month in January because that's the end of the fucking month. So looking at the available dates, that's when Sandy Scott had booked February 13th. I believe that that's what it was. February 13th, 1994. And I said, okay, we're going to be out six weeks instead of four. We'll load that card up. We've got six weeks to promote it. That was the blow-off between Terry Funk and Bullet Bob Armstrong, etc. So we're going to call it Sunday Bloody Sunday, and we're really going to push this thing. And that's when coming off of doing well on Thanksgiving and very well on Christmas, we did 4,000 people and $33,000 at the gate, our all-time record for Sunday Bloody Sunday. We've been out six weeks. We came back in the middle of the month of February. It's cold weather outside. It was a Sunday afternoon, didn't conflict with football. And they came. So the, ne the next year, we're going to try to do the same thing. However, again, on in 1994, we did good on Thanksgiving. We did good on Christmas. But months before that, we had tried to book these dates. And the Coliseum, that's where there was an issue the, in February. They had some recurring event. It might have been the circus that had the Coliseum booked for 10 days. One of those long runs, right? It took up our first couple of, of Sundays and we didn't want to stay out for like seven or eight weeks. So fuck it. So we'll go the Saturday night, the night before the Super Bowl, because we obviously aren't going to run that Sunday afternoon. It's a Super Bowl, but there's, you know, people paying attention to things going on. And that worked. I think in hindsight, if we could have pre presented this card two weeks earlier in the month and we hadn't just been there for Christmas, it would have done even better. But nevertheless, the night before the Super Bowl, Saturday night, rare night for wrestling in Knoxville back in those days, but it worked. Here was the card, Brian. The opening match, D'Lo Brown, the gangsta's assistant, defeated Brian Logan. Boo Bradley defeated Chris Candido. Boo Bradley, obviously later known to the ECW fans as Balls Mahoney. If I remember right, this is right when you had to start finishing up Chris too, right? Yes, yes, because Chris was, um, no, it was a little, well, we had some word. It was a little bit later, but this was, he was going to put Boo over anyway because this was Boo had been taken under Mick Foley's wing and Mick gave him his special tights and everything. So I think Chris was going to be around for another month or two, but still. The Smoky Mountain Tag Team title was supposed to be on the line with the Rock and Roll Express defending against Eddie Gilbert and Unibom. And Eddie had come and done the four weeks of TV leading up to this, and then we never saw him again. So since we didn't know until he didn't come that he actually wasn't going to come, we had a single match with Ricky Morton against Unibom, obviously who would later become Kane and obviously who would later become the mayor of fucking Knoxville. Can you the first night that the people of Knoxville saw their future mayor was January 28th, 1995.
And Ricky won by disqualification because we won try to make the people a little happy since we were fucking them out of a tag team title match, but it was way too early to beat Glenn, so it was a disqualification. And uh, by, what was it, a week or two later, by the well, uh, uh, nine days later, by the time we did TV, I had Al Snow ready to come in and play the, the part of Eddie Gilbert. And he actually did a probably a better job than Eddie would. And <laughs> not at being Eddie Gilbert, but at being Al Snow. Anyway, next was the number one contender match where uh, we would determine the number one contender for the next Smoky Mountain Championship match. And that was Buddy Landell, the heel that I had uh, just brought back in because he was good buddy again. He was good buddy when he was a heel. Uh, Buddy Landell beat Tracy Smothers. Then... Buddy was also scheduled to be the timekeeper in the Smoky Mountain Championship match where the dirty white boy defended the Smoky Mountain heavyweight title against Jerry the King Lawler. And some way or another, with Buddy Landell at ringside, wouldn't you know what happened? Lawler beat dirty white boy and won the championship. But fortunately, dirty white boy was able to turn the tables on Landell immediately afterwards in a lights-out match and beat Buddy Landell. And people are thinking, what the fuck? Cornette was on drugs. We were setting up a a three-way rivalry, or had set up a three-way rivalry with two heels and one babyface. Lawler and Landell as the heels with nothing to do with each other, and White Boy was the babyface. And then Lawler was basically transferring the title, but not the way they thought. Because then the next month, we would have uh, Lawler. Just, we would have well, we'd have Lawler was supposed to defend the title in a return match against Dirty White Boy, but that no good Landell would injure White Boy beforehand, and the person to step up and substitute for him would be Bobby Blaze, who ended up beating Lawler <laughs> and winning the title, and and. Yeah, we had some intrigue going on. But anyway, keeping people busy. After White Boy beat Landell in the Lights Out match, then the Heavenly Bodies had come back from the WWF to take on the gangsters, New Jack and Mustafa, because when they had the gangsters had beaten up the Rock and Roll Express Christmas night, I was in the Rock and Roll's corner, and the gangsters had also turned on me and nightsticked me and busted me open and blah, blah, blah. So I brought the bodies back, and we had a double disqualification to set up the following month. In Knoxville, we came back with a six-man tag with D'Lo and I involved. In Johnson City, we had a Smoky Mountain street fight. And the finish of this match was a double disqualification because it spilled out of the ring. And we actually went down the aisle, went out the back door of the Coliseum. A camera followed us, and... God dang it, I can't remember what the name of the street is outside the Coliseum, but the gangsters dressed as they normally did, the heavenly bodies in their trunks with shooting stars and comets on them, and me in a pink suit waving a tennis racket, beating D'Lo Brown over the head at 10 o'clock at night <laughs> uh, on a Saturday night before the Super Bowl, came out of the back of the Knoxville Civic Coliseum, went across the road with cars coming, beaten on each other and chased him up the hill into the Marriott parking lot. And then Ricky Morton won a 15 man Smoky mountain rumble 
Actually, I think we did that earlier in the night because I don't think the gangsters came back from the Marriott. But anyway, um, with that card, we did 1,741 people paid and 193 comps. And the comps, most of the comps in were paid in another fashion uh, because they mostly went to sponsors. We gave probably... 40 to 60 tickets to the radio station, they would do ticket giveaways and they would announce your event when they did it. So it was a free plug. So those, we would give the tickets away, but mostly the free tickets that we pulled went to sponsors like Mrs. Winners, Classy Motors, whoever that are paying us money per month. And they get those tickets to give to their customers. So we're putting up their banner, we're running their commercial on a show we're already paying for, and we're giving them tickets. So we had no money out of our pockets, so we took that money and said, okay, they bought the tickets. Anyway, so having said that, it was total 1,934 people paying a gross of $15,486. The taxes were $1,180, which left a net of $14,305. <laughs> now, in that was 1995. In today's money, that would be a gross of 28330 and a net of 26169 But this is kind of interesting because as I was looking at this in comparison with the Houston uh, statement, we kind of hit the same thing with a different formula on the payoff. Because I've mentioned in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, we couldn't, we couldn't put the guys on the traditional payoff on the house deal and keep the talent because we were only running four days a week. And while some of our shows were big, most of our shows were smaller. And so if we put guys on minimum guarantees so that they knew what they were having and, and per week, and then the idea was instead of running two shows, we're going to run four or five and split that guarantee up so that each show costs us less. But it wasn't the formula that the territories used to use because in those days they were not only drawing bigger crowds because wrestling was healthier, but they were running every night of the week and they kept guys busy. But on this show, as I mentioned, our net was 14305 Well, the rent on the Knoxville Civic Coliseum, the ticketing, the ticket master charge, the staffing, we've gone over this, ticket takers, police, etc. The total of that was $3,737 for everything. We rented a, the number two building in Knoxville, a 6,000 seat building that had been there for 40 years that everybody in East Tennessee within a hundred miles knew how to get to is a major facility. The, the big acts went there and we got out of the place all in everything, including staffing for $3,737. Because they, we rented the building 12 times a year. They liked wrestling. Bob Polk at that time was still involved with the Coliseum. He had been there for years and worked with Continental and a bunch of the different wrestling promotions. So we got a good deal and we kept the expenses down as much as we could. Still today, that 3737 is $6,836 $6, in today's money. Explain to me where you can go now and rent 
the number two building in any town, a 6,000 seat building, 6,800 bucks. And the talent was 3977. So right at about what the rent and staffing was. And if you look at our gross, for once we were kind of right in the ballpark. Sometimes we were too hot and sometimes we were too cold, but about $4,000 is approximately 30% of the gate, which is what the old-time promoters used to supposedly be paying the boys. 30 to 35% of the net gate after taxes was supposed to go to talent. In our case, the guys on top on this one honestly made a little bit less than they would have made in the territory system. And the guys in the opening match made a little bit more because we had a $75 minimum. And a lot of the guys, you know, were on 400 or 450 a week. So you would divide that over three shows or whatever. But as we've mentioned, the rock and roll express, the baby faces, they made more money on gimmicks, but nevertheless, the only other expenses we had on this show, we spent $306 on the TV spots and 175 bucks on the ring crew. So the total of our expenses for this was 17 talents on the card, including two referees, were $8,195. That's what it cost to run that show. That means we came home with $6,110. In today's money, that would be 14,992 left over and $11,177 that we brought home. Now, of course, we had to pay the Knoxville TV and we were spending somewhere around 800 bucks a week to get on TV then. So we brought home 6110. We spent, if it was a four week uh, month that month, $3,200 on TV. So we still came out almost three grand ahead. Was D'Lo still on the ring crew? Um, Would he have been paid twice? He... Or did him and Harold Varner already have their falling out? I think that he and Harold may have, have had their falling out, and we got him off the side of the road and took him off the ring crew by then. But yeah, he would have been... When he was on the ring crew, he was getting preliminary money, 75 bucks plus whatever he got for the ring crew. Harold took the majority of it because it was his truck. When it comes to all this money, do you pay yourself? Oh, no. I never paid myself one fucking time for a Smoky Mountain Wrestling show because I'm a fucking idiot. No, I didn't pay myself. I paid uh, some of the times I'd pay the guys, it'd be my money that I was making from the W. That's why I had the WWF job so I could afford to run Smoky Mountain Wrestling. <laughs> that's why I put myself on some of the spot shows to wrestle a lot because I could get an extra match out of me and I didn't have to fucking pay myself. I, I, I was I was getting $500 a week from Rick Rubin's uh, financial team as as a salary until we got things going, and, and that's, that's what it stayed. I, I never wanted to ask for more money for myself while we needed other things for the company. This was a labor of love, not a fucking cash grab. But that's that that's the thing if this was not a huge show in Knoxville it was one of our better ones but certainly not one of the biggest ones but it wasn't one of our shittier ones it was it was a nice a sweet spot there and if you had three or four of those a week and a couple of spot shows that's what i'm saying this was not a, a time in wrestling where people were the business was making a lot of money in general. And that's the year that Vince lost $6 million, 1995. 
But the territory model, we didn't buy a plane ticket. Lawler lived three hours. Or, well, no, he was in Memphis. So he came over because we had been doing the Memphis SMW versus USWA feud. Randy Hales was booking. Our guys had drawn them some money. Lawler it was in the wrestling business. He knew what the fucking deal was. It's part of his company that he co-owns that we've been helping out. So he gets in a car and has somebody drive him over to Knoxville. And we give him a nice little payoff and he helped out. And the next month he came back and dropped it and blah, blah, blah. There was no other plane tickets, no hotels. Everybody either lived in town or drove over from Nashville three hours away. So you kept expenses down. And that's why I said the territories were capable of making really good money just by smaller mid-size houses in repetition. And that's why if we've been able to open up a couple of other markets of the size of Knoxville to do a couple of these a week, even, and then the spot shows, you'd be fine. You just, that was a point in time where the, the, you weren't able to get open enough television markets to run the live events because the people would come to the live events if they could see it on television. But as I said, the only difference in this and an old time territory breakdown, as we'll see here in a second with Houston, is that the guys on top on my show would have made more because they wouldn't have been on guarantee. They'd have been being paid on the house and the underneath guys would have made less. But they didn't say anything because on all the small shows that we lost our ass on, they still got the same thing. So how, th- how can they argue for more money on the big house when they didn't argue for less money on the small house? See what I'm saying? Yeah. Some could couple did, but not for long. But then we go back 15 years. Now the territory system is in full swing. And everybody, for the most part, is doing well. And this is a breakdown of a Houston show from June 22nd, 1980. And the reason why I got a tickle of it when I, when I looked at it is because I had 17 talents on my card, including two referees. And he's got 16 on his card, including two referees. And I would assume that the rent was probably back there 15 years earlier in Houston, because those were the days where Paul Bosch was running the Sam Houston Coliseum every Friday night. So I would imagine he had a really sweet rent deal and it probably wouldn't have been much more. But in this case, the main event was Harley race versus Mil Moscaris for the NWA title with a co uh, semifinal match of Gino Hernandez against Bruiser Brody. And then the rest of the card is its matches with, you know, wrestlers the local people know, but ain't nothing to write home about. So let me go through the payoffs first. The Well, I'll give you the gross gate. The gross was $34,160, but because they only had 3% state tax back then, the tax was $1,024.80. The bastards, I got zapped for more tax than he did on house at twice as much. And the net was $33,135. That was for an NWA world title match on top, but this was not by far the biggest card in the history of Houston. 
And that money in today's money, the the gross or the net gate would have been one hundred and twelve thousand one hundred and twelve dollars. And this is something that he did every Friday night, not this big, but a show they ran every Friday night. So imagine you ran Friday before the next Friday you come in world title match to 112 grand. And in uh hold on here a second, I lost my figures. Okay. So Harley race and Mill Moscaris for a payoff for the main event on a $34,000 gross house got $2,385 a piece. Remember when the Midnight Express and Watson Dog drew a hundred grand at the Sam Houston Coliseum? We got fifteen hundred dollars a piece. Even splitting it five ways because it was a tag team and a manager. Fifteen, thirty, forty-five, sixty, seventy-five. Paul Bosch doing the payoffs paid Harley and Moscaris collectively almost as much money as that match got under Watts uh, four years later really says something too considering this is right i mean right before i would think 1980 right before the harley race nwa relationship with bosch completely fell out because he thought harley was purposely screwing with him and look at the payoff he gave him here i mean that yeah. was, what would it be it would be st louis and houston when it came to the best payoffs for him probably well in that 2385 dollars in today's money translates to 8069 so that's an $8,000 payoff for a house show for both guys. No wonder Mascaris was so stuck up. And Gino and Brody got getting the grand underneath. Well, a dollar then is three thirty-eight today. So they basically got $3,300 for being the semifinal match. And then let me give you the rest of the names. Tiny Tom and Little Lone Eagle. He gave the Midgets $500 apiece. El Rivalde, which is one of the Hispanic wrestlers I have no idea, Jose Lothario, Hans Schroeder, El Gran Marcus, all got 300 each, probably a tag team match. El Cicadelico got 200, 250, but 200 trans. And that's Moscaris' well, brother. Moscaris' brother, he had to come along. Bull Ramos, 250. Leo Seitz, 250. Tiger Conway Jr., 250. Bronco Lubitsch was one of the referees. He got $275. He was bonus $25. He might have torn his shirt. Danny McShane, referee, got $250. Nick Kozak, the ring crew, he got $250. I paid my ring crew $75 less than Bosch did 15 years later. He sent $116 to the Dallas office for booking Harley Race and the midgets for him and sent $325 to the NWA in St. Louis because that was the percentage for uh, booking the champion. What about Gary Hart? Because Gary Hart, was he the booker for the Dallas office at that time? Well, he was not. he's not on this sheet even for a payoff. So he didn't come down. He was on the outs. Who knows? Something happened. Because sometimes the Dallas booker would be uh, down on these sheets for a payoff, as we've seen from some of the other sheets. But anyway, so all that boiled down to that his cash talent payroll was $11,155, which was much more than my four grand, but it worked out to 33% of his net gross. So 
that was the way he got it. He took 33% of the gross. He paid the main event the majority of the money because they drew it. The semifinal got most of the rest. And then because there was only another 12 wrestlers on the card, they each divided between $250 and $500. Another problem with Watts's cards was he was grossing a lot more money but he not only had more guys on the card, he had more top guys on the card. I mean, he went deep with Midnight Express, Rock and Roll Express, Terry Taylor, Magnum TA, Mr. Wrestling 2, Junkyard Dog, uh, Hacksaw Duggan, Star, Star, Star. So it's, a, it's kind of a devil's bargain to get those big grosses, you got to put the star-studded cards out. The star-studded cards need big grosses because those stars ain't going to stay if you're dividing one piece of pie eight ways. You need the whole fucking pie. But that's the way, but again, that's the way that the territory business used to work and again Houston was a standalone town. But imagine the guys with the territories like Crockett in the Carolinas and especially Vince Sr. in the Northeast and Vern Gagne with the AWA when he had those major media markets in the Midwest. You could do Chicago's and Denver's and Minneapolis's like that. And the office would end up with a significant amount of money because of the constant repetition of these thousands of tickets being sold over and over and over again. And back there, 34 grand as a gross in Houston at those ticket prices back then probably means they did somewhere around six to 7,000 people. And that's for a weekly event. And that was toward the end of the month. So there you go. Any questions, uh, Grasshopper? No, I think you've answered most of my questions in talking about everything. And I, I always enjoy when we do the Houston payoff sheets because it always unleashes this history out of you. <laughs> <laughs> we always get a good segment out of it. But no, great stuff there. <laughs> well, here's another thing. Do you know how to double sell tickets? You mean do once the, once the people get in the door, you sell the tickets again? Yes. Do the people know that that's a thing? I would imagine you can't do this anymore. So this is something that the young folks out there will enjoy. You used to, this was something that depending on who was doing it, they could be on your side or against you. Here's the procedure. Back in those days, if it was a major arena like the Philly Spectrum or Madison Square Garden, you may have a problem, right? But the average arenas in town, the Evansville, Indiana Coliseum, classic example, or the regular territory wrestling arenas, a lot of times the building would supply the ticket sellers and ticket takers, and the promoter just had to have a manifest with the amount of tickets that were going to be sold and the numbers, and then they'd give it to the building, and then they'd go back and you'd check the numbers afterwards and do the settlement. Some places, the building was just, it was open to you, and the promoter would provide a couple people, one to sell tickets or two to sell tickets, and somebody would take them at the door or whatever, and, you know, that would be it. So depending on who was supplying these things this could work to the promoter's benefit or to their detriment that's why a lot of times if promoters thought that there was something shady going on and the 
the uh, the count they were getting from the box office didn't match up with what they were eyeballing the building at, they'd put somebody, some stooge or somebody's brother-in-law, somebody you could trust, in the lobby with a clicker, one of those hand clickers. And every time somebody walked through the door, a fan, they'd click it. And then if the click didn't match the settlement count at the end of the night with the tickets, then there'd be some issues. But here's what you do. Especially back in the old days, general admission tickets were sold off of a roll. It was just a roll of tickets. And it had a serial number at each end of the ticket. And so you would start by recording the starting number of your general admission tickets on your roll. Then you would sell the tickets. And then when you closed your box office, you'd write down the number you finished with. Then you'd deduct, and that should be the number of general admission tickets you sold. But what would happen is if somebody that was selling the tickets was hooked up in a deal with somebody that was taking the tickets, this is how you could work it. You sell that general admission ticket to the fan at the ticket window. He walks around to the door. He gives the ticket to the ticket taker. The ticket taker doesn't tear the ticket like he's supposed to and hand one half of it back to the fan as he goes in and drop the other half in the box there at the door. He just takes the ticket and tells the van, get on inside. And when everybody's shuffling in, they don't give a fuck, right? And plus, they've just paid $3 cash for this or $4 cash for the or $5 maybe for a general admission ticket. Nobody's using a credit card. This is 40, 50 years ago. So once that the ticket taker has 40 or 50 of those general admission tickets that he's pulled instead of torn in his pocket, he just sends them around to the guy in the ticket office that's selling them or woman, and she sells them over again. Then it doesn't come off the fucking number off the roll, but once instead of twice. So if the promoter is doing that, the promoter is dodging tax with the athletic commission. If the building is doing it, that means they're stealing money from the promoter. Or in a lot of cases, it's not the building itself that's sanctioning this behavior, but it's the crooked ticket seller and ticket taker that have gone into business for themselves and ain't telling the building. But that's the way you can do that. And I mean, double selling tickets has been around at fairs and carnivals and wrestling and whatever for as long as there's been tickets. So that's why that you'll always see the promoter, if they don't have the box office staff, if they didn't provide them themselves, they're always in the box office and they're always wandering around the front door. Just make sure there's nothing shady going on. Did I explain that correctly, Brian? I think so. Because I'll tell you what, if you're running your business and you're not keeping an eye on everything, if you've got poor visibility because you're still relying on an outdated method and outdated finance software, you can't double sell a general admission ticket with outdated finance software. If you need to see the full picture and have your eyes opened, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. Brian, I've mentioned this before. You can't see anything when you're blind, when you don't have perfect visibility on your business, when you're in the clouds and you can't see out of them. With visibility and control of your financials, 
inventory, HR, planning, budgeting, general admission tickets. NetSuite is everything you need to scam people and double sell shit and take advantage whoa, and cheat whoa. people out of money no, it's all not. in one place. You can see every, it's let's the number one. On that. It's the number one cloud financial system. If you've got your heads in the clouds and you can't see all your money, they disperse the clouds and you can see all your money clearly. And you can see not only who's screwing you, but you can learn how to screw other people. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes. Processes? And you can close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition and the police. 93% of surveyed oh, businesses on. increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. And 7% found that it was much easier to double sell the general admission tickets. There is no 7%, ladies and gentlemen. Well, now it's growing. It's growing all the time now because more people are signing on to NetSuite and getting their heads out of their ass and learning how to look at their money. You got to keep an eye on this every say. You don't know who's going to fuck you around. So you need to have your money, eyes on your money, your mind on your money and your money on your mind all the time. And over 28,000 businesses and several convicted felons already use NetSuite. God damn it. And for the new year, <laughs> NetSuite has a new financing program for those ready to be bilked and swindled. No, it's a, it's a new financing program for those ready to upgrade to NetSuite.com slash JCE. That's what you got to do. You got to go to NetSuite. That's N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash JCE for this special one-of-a-kind financing offer on the number one financial system for growing businesses. Learn all the tricks of the trade. They'll even teach you how to print some of this money. NetSuite. No, they won't. They won't? No. Well, they'll certainly tell you what color it's supposed to be. NetSuite.com slash JCE. Folks, you're going to make out like a million dollars. No more double dipping at the county fair. Now you're going to be doing this stuff like the pros do it. Well, and I guess we should mention at this point that uh, we are not going to comment on anything that happened on NXT this past week because it wasn't fucking worth it. Braun Steiner didn't wrestle, and the rest was black. And I'm not—I'm not even saying all the talent on the show is black. I'm saying the way that it's presented is black. If you take the Hope Diamond and slop a bunch of cow shit on it, it probably wouldn't look too attractive. So there was nothing as I read the recap to even interest us on whatever they've done to that program. Nobody likes it anymore. Everybody's complaining about it. The people that did like the old NXT don't like the new NXT. And I'm not seeing a lot of people who weren't watching the old NXT flocking to the new NXT. Have you? No, not at all. Not so we all. ain't going to flock either. Flock NXT. <laughs> I think Braun Steiner is going to wrestle next week. We'll see what happens there. And I should mention that apparently, according to the the boss of the drive-thru, uh, Mr. Brian Last, we are going to watch the Royal Rumble this weekend. And our thoughts on that, as well as whatever occurs on SmackDown right before the Royal Rumble, will be 
we'll we'll give that dissertation on this week's drive through, which will be on Tuesday as we plan now our normal day. We think that that's going to be possible now that the the weather and the moving and the and the miscellaneous things that have been dragging you and I in different directions. Brian, we're finally we're getting back together. I'm going to get back on the regular schedule. Yeah, that's great. Are you committing to watching the Women's Royal Rumble? No. Come on. You know now that there's supposed to be some big surprises. It's worth I'll, you watching it. Come on. I'll, I'm not going to watch the WWE women's crew attempt to wrestle for an hour. If there, if Ronda Rousey comes in, I'll I'll start watching there. If if uh if it gets down to nut cutting time with Charlotte and Rhea Ripley, possibly maybe for heaven's sake, and 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 maybe Becky, I might watch that. But I'm not sitting there for an hour. Come on. Who said it's going to be an hour? They'll probably do a different person or different woman running in every thirty seconds. Well, if they can speed it up, that would help me. But uh, but we we will watch enough of the rest of it too. I want to see what's going to happen with the, the world championships. See, I always liked the women's Royal rumble because so many of the women formerly known as divas have been gone for so long that they have that moment where their music hits and people go, Oh, I remember this music. And then they come out and they point or something and people go, Oh yeah, I remember her. And then she gets in the ring and she, you remember, oh yeah, she can't wrestle. That's why she was here during yeah. the diva generation. It's always fun. It's always a fun. And then they get the good wrestlers in there. That's where I'll pick it up. Just don't, don't wait on me. You get started. I'll be there eventually. Do you think we're going to get any of the NXT stars in the Royal Rumble, like Gunther or Braun Steiner? <sighs> Honestly, I... <clears throat> I, I, they need to keep Walter away from the main audience until they decide that they're going to push Walter or Gunther or, you know, we missed Gunther Gable Williams. How did we not? I was fixated on Gunther Tootie, but we missed Gunther Gable <laughs> Williams. And next week, he's going to come out with a fucking lion or a tiger and the whip and the chair and blonde hair. We also missed, apparently, the salacious life of Joey Ross. Did you see all those stories that people were sending us? What? No, I did not. He's married like nine times and they were all hookers. <laughs> <laughs> and he no, died on stage and they didn't know did he was dead. This? Oh, my God. It was all, someone sent me a whole thread of stories and it made me say, God, I wish this was a book. It was incredible. He died on stage and no one knew he was dead. What? <laughs> what is, he was sitting at the edge of the stage and he just All right, died. no, now wait, hold on now a second. Now wait a minute. Late breaking if we're going to Google. We're going to Google. Or going to something here, whatever I've got. Well, wait a now hold on. I gotta get my keyboard. We Joe E. Ross. Hold on a second. A Wikipedia. Something. Joe E. Ross. I found an article from WFMU, one of my favorite radio stations, Freeform Radio here in New Jersey. The King of Slobs, The Life of Joey Ross by Cliff Nesteroff. Uh, this is a long article, though. I'm trying to see if there's anything that goes into the... Oh, no. Listen to this. Salacious stuff. This is Wiki Wikipedia. Ross died of a heart attack on August 13, 1982. That was actually the day before Flair wrestled Lawler in the Memphis studio. While performing in the clubhouse of his apartment building in Los Angeles, the Oakwood Apartments, 
he was doing a routine for the folks in the clubhouse of his apartment building and died on stage at the age of uh, approximately 68, give or take. You know the punchline of that story, right? No. Again, no one knows what's real and what's urban myth, but the punchline of the story is he dies in the middle of the set, and then his widow, the latest of the hookers that he married, goes to get the money for the set, and whoever was in charge paid her half, and he said he didn't finish the set. Oh, it, well, it says personal life. Ross, who had trouble memorizing his lines, was often known as a difficult person to work with. Co-workers complained that he was continually vulgar, even cursing around children. <laughs> Others, however, called him a man of sweet character. <clears throat> oh, my God, Joey Ross. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I can see that now. Ooh, ooh, ooh. You would have fucked me. Ooh. And we thought Fred Gwynn didn't approve of him as Gunther Tootie. Can you imagine if he <laughs> was around all this other stuff? He was a cartoon voice. He 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 was on Hong Kong Fooey. Yeah, for heaven's sake! And he was he was the Gronk in It's About Time. We it's about time. It's about space. It's about two men in the strangest place. It's about two astronauts. Sergeant Bilko. Sergeant Bilko. Ritzik. Uh, I I wouldn't have believed that he married nine hookers. <laughs> All righty. Well, I don't know why we got on that, but uh, <laughs> we'll see what more we can find out about the life and times of Joey Ross. Uh, but speaking of which, so we're going to do these things on the drive through, which is your program. But what is going on at the rest of the Arcadian Vanguard Empire this week? Another action packed week on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Get information about all the shows on Twitter at Super Podcast or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. A few notes. The latest episode of Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam is out right now at McAdamPod.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. John and his special guest Ron Lemieux look at WWF from 1982, 40 years ago, the winter of 1982, the arrival of Jimmy Snuka. Don Morocco, Bob Backlund, Jesse Ventura, Adrian Adonis, and so much more. Once again, stick to wrestling with John McAdam. McAdamPod.com are available wherever you find your favorite shows. Want to make the big announcement? Shut up and wrestle with Brian Solomon. You can subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, some people still call it. Subscribe today. It'll soon be available everywhere you find your favorite podcast. Every Wednesday, a new episode with the first one debuting. This coming Wednesday, the first week of February, subscribe today. You can go to suawpod.com. That's shut up and wrestle. Suawpod.com or look for Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian Solomon wherever you find your favorite podcast or just shut up and wrestle. That's right. And if you love wrestling history, you're going to really love these conversations that Brian Solomon's having. We're really excited about this show. And of course, the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership! Fuck you. Go through the archive today at 605pod.com. That was a rude little bastard that jumped in there at the end, wasn't he? Available wherever you find your favorite podcast. I enjoyed the little voice that you did there. That was uh, very clever. Of course, new episode of production coming very, very soon, but 605pod.com. The 
friendship. Fuck you. Yeah. What's going on over here? You're ripping stuff. You're banging stuff. Uh, <clears throat> well, they were ripping and banging on AEW this past week. Um, the Wednesday night episode of AEW this past week was called Beach Break and had a beach theme. It's January and they're in Cleveland. How was this a beach break? In name only. This wasn't even a son of a beach. <laughs> okay. Anyway, well, Cleveland does have beaches. You just can't see them now this time of year because of the ice and pollution. Anyway, this was the big, uh, the showdown over this hotly disputed TNT title, the TNT championship that's now defended on TBS. Cody, who was the, the original champion, he beat Sammy, what, three or four weeks ago, and Sammy Guevara, who's the interim champion because Cody was quarantined and missed one TV, uh, and potentially because he hadn't signed his contract yet, and we don't know that he has. But so they ended up with two TNE, TNE, T, TNT TV title holders on TBS. And so they decided to settle things with a ladder match, because why not? Because that just, that was just instantly called for, right? That was on the top of everybody's mind. Well, why don't they have a ladder match? Did we ever determine where that came from, or just that they thought it was time to have another ladder match? Well, if you go back to the history of Michaels and Razor Ramon, there were two intercontinental champions. So this being the situation where for the last couple of weeks we had two champions, there's only one way to decide who is the rightful TNT champion, and that is the ladder match. <sighs> All righty. Um, I noticed a few things at the start. Both of them are baby faces, and the crowd booed both of them. Cody Moore, but there were still, did you, you heard there were boos for Sammy because there are some people now that are saying, okay, we're going to cheer for Cody. So they're booing the baby faces he wrestles, but most people are still saying, we don't like Cody. So they're booing him more. But we, this created a situation in this bizarro world that the booking of AEW creates where there's two baby faces that are going to wrestle for a title and they shake hands before the match and the crowd booed the handshake. Did you see that? I did. So, and the belts are ridiculously high in the air, but so now the crowd booed the handshake to start off. So this is the kind of people that would have cheered the hunter that shot Bambi's mother. They started this thing and I started liking it instantly because they did nice wrestling spots. Sammy has improved his, his confidence. He looks better physically. You can see it on his face. He feels more at, at home. He's more experienced. He's really, you know, he's into this now, right? And I was really enjoying the wrestling match that they were having. Until after about three minutes, they went to the floor and started after one of the six fucking ladders that's sitting outside. 
and then it turned into a ladder match. And as we've mentioned many times, that just fucking sucks. Um, Cody got a big ladder and bridged the ring to the rail with it and then left it sit there so you know it's going to come into play later on. They're fighting on the floor. They go over the rail way out into the crowd. And they're fighting in the arena, nowhere near the ladders. Why are the two baby faces out in the arena like two mortal enemies that want to kill each other, fighting nowhere near the place and the equipment that they can use to win the match? This wasn't a blood feud match. Sammy didn't, you know, attack Cody from behind and steal his title. Cody never fucking held Sammy down and sodomized his Dalmatian. They just feel like that, even though they're putting a hat on a hat, even though they're already doing one gimmick match where they got to climb shit, they have to go out in the arena and check that box off for every indie wrestling fan's dream. Oh, they're fighting in the arena. Anybody can do it. Doesn't take any talent. These guys are good. They can work. That's why I wish they weren't having a ladder match because they could actually have a good match. But anybody can fight out in the crowd, not necessarily in a ladder match because it's not necessary. And then they, they, they're already going to do enough stuff in the ring. Sammy jumps up on the guardrail and does a cutter off the guardrail onto Cody to the floor. But Cody just went down to his hands and knees and Sammy's the one landed flat of his back on a concrete. Cody's face came nowhere near the fucking floor. They got back in the ring and fought with the ladder. Then, for the break spot, Cody gives Sammy a superplex off the top of the ladder. It looked great. It wasn't the finish. It wasn't even close. It's a break spot. So they went to the break. And when we came back, they were already back up fighting. And Cody drops... Cody had one of the ladders unfolded, but upside down. So it was like a V shape and picks Sammy up for like Arn Anderson's old gourd buster, but drops him stomach first across the fucking supports in the middle of the ladder, which you can't work. These, these guys, they're going to fucking cripple somebody. And then it, this was a nice spot. He figure forward. Sammy's legs through the ladder and then put the figure four on him. That's great. What a heel. He's a great heel. The best heel in the fucking company is the guy who says in these exact words on television, I'm not going to turn heel. Then they've got two ladders in the ring. One of them's 10 feet tall and one of them's 12 feet tall. And this was the spot of the match. Sammy jumped off the top rope onto the top of the one ladder and jumped to the other ladder and gave Cody a cutter. And we mentioned why that there's no sense in calling this a cutter because Dallas page is not involved. RKO, whatever the fuck gave Cody that off the top of the big ladder from the small one. And they took the bump perfectly. Cody went face first. Sammy went, but they, it was a great visual. It was perfectly done. It was one of the, 
not only one of the bigger bumps that you'll ever see, but also one of the more spectacular <clears throat> setups and springboards into it. I couldn't believe it. Neither could the people after they sold it for 15 seconds and got back up and started climbing ladders. And then they had both ladders and one guy was on each. And then Sammy was trying to climb, but his back was to Cody and Cody grabbed him and Sammy kind of leaned back for him. Okay. Cody hooks Sammy and gives him the crossroads off the ladder to the ground and Sammy sold it motionless like death while Cody set the ladder up and Cody starts climbing the ladder. Sammy's been flat of his back for 30 seconds. Cody's almost up the ladder. Sammy pops up and runs up the ladder behind Cody, fresh as a daisy. And now they're both hanging off the trapeze that the belts are hanging from that obviously they've reinforced for this spot. And as they're both hanging from the belt apparatus, Sammy drops and then Cody drops. And Brian, do you know what they just did there without even realizing that they did it? What's that? They both took the scaffold match bump. Think about it. They're hanging from the thing that's 20 feet in the air and they drop to their feet. The match is not even over yet. They won't finish this fucking thing for anything in the world. Cody has given Sammy a crossroads off the ladder and a superplex off the top of the ladder. Sammy gave Cody a cutter off the top of the big ladder. And now they've both just taken the scaffold match bump. All in the same match on free television that honestly people aren't going to remember next week because they're going to have some other fucked up stunt show that'll surpass this. And in a lot of these spots, poor Paul Turner, the referee, I loved him in Ring of Honor, great guy. We didn't bury him. We gave him some authority. He's just useless there like the rest of the referees, but he's actually on camera holding the ladder so that they can do these goofy spots. The referee was holding the ladder. I mean, one time, Brian Hildebrand, Mark Curtis, bless him, Tracy Smothers and Chris Candido are having a ladder match. I want to say... It might have been in Beckley, West Virginia. I don't know where it was. It was the, the Bluegrass Brawl, wasn't it? It was the Bluegrass Brawl, son of a bitch. The big one in Pikeville. And they beat that ladder up that they had so much. And by the way, we found out you should always have a second ladder, but there should only be one ladder at a ladder match because if you have six ladders, it becomes a goofy fucking visual. And it also encourages all these guys to do these stupid spots. If you have one ladder, they got to fight over the ladder. They got to set the ladder up and they got to climb it. Nice and easy to understand. But we should add a secondary one because they beat that ladder up so bad on each other that the leg broke. And to get the finish in because they couldn't jump that high, Brian Hildebrand had to get under the ladder in state of emergency and hold it while they climbed up and did the deal. And he came back and apologized to me afterwards. He said, I said, you had no other choice. You had to. 
But these ladders weren't broken. They were just doing too much goofy, risky shit on top of them. The referee in front of the fans had to hold the ladder. And I actually saw somebody on Twitter remark, I said, what's wrong with that? Okay, next time you watch UFC, when one of the guys gets on top of the other guy, is the referee holding the guy so that the other guy can fucking beat the shit out of him? The referee is supposed to be impartial. It's supposed to, this is supposed to be a match where these guys settle their shit with a ladder and the referee's there to fucking call for the winner when somebody gets the belt. Now the referee's got to be put in position of enabling the stunt show. So now they're fighting on the floor again after all these bumps, by the way. And that midget Del Sol whatever the fuck his name is, Mobile Midget. He comes out and gets in the ring and starts yelling at Cody. And Cody, uh, no, I'm sorry, he didn't get in the ring. He started yelling at Cody on the floor and Cody grabs him and throws him in the ring and gives him a pile driver. What the, and, and you never see him again. But then suddenly, while Cody was pile driving the other stooge, Sammy is 100% again. After the superplex, after the cutter off the top, after the scaffold bump, after the fucking blah, blah, blah. And he does a dive on Cody from the ring to the floor and then hits Cody with Sammy's finish on the floor while he's selling no effects of anything that's happened. And I'll have, please let this fucking end. It will never end. And then Sammy pulls out another ladder from underneath the ring. And he puts Cody on the bridge ladder. Remember that from 20 minutes ago. And Cody lays there for 45 seconds while Sammy climbs the big ladder, stands on the top of it, does a senton off of it, <laughs> and lands right on Cody Rhodes. The ladder didn't buckle. Cody did. Both of them wrist, Sammy just bounces right off the fucking thing to the floor. Both of them risking breaking their necks for a phony spot that people won't remember next week, and it still wasn't the finish. And here's the thing. If Sammy could put Cody on that bridged ladder, and he would lay there for 45 seconds while Sammy climbed this giant ladder, stood up there, prayed and made the sign of the cross and all this stuff like I'm a crazy idiot, which he, which he is, and then dives off and Cody never moved. Why didn't Sammy just get in the ring and go climb and get the belt? I don't understand. But after Sammy took that bump and bounced off Cody and knocked all the air out of Cody, within 30 seconds, Sammy had rolled into the ring and climbed the ladder. But fortunately, Cody did the same thing after the fucking guy dove off a 15-foot ladder and just landed right on him and crushed all the air out of him. Cody managed to run up the other side so they could fight on the top. And then Sammy grabbed one of the belts and hit Cody in the head with it. And he took the bump and Sammy got both belts. There were five or six more impressive bumps in that match than the one that the finish came from. But none of those won the match because the way they had set it up, it wasn't time. 
this was not Razor Ramon and Shawn Michaels. This was a stunt show. Cody Rhodes and Sammy Guevara, both great in the ring. I, they would have had a good match if they'd have had a regular match. They've had some. This wasn't one because it sucked because it was ridiculous. They can't. They can't have these ladder matches anymore without stuntman bullshit and constant furniture. Why do you need to use other furniture in a fucking match with a ladder? Why do you need six? Why do you have to take these the uh, every bump possible off the top of these ladders to show that nothing is going to hurt you and nothing works, even though probably a lot of them hurt? And then win the fucking match with a simple little bullshit because it's time. Michaels and Razor never lost sight of this as a contest where two of us opposing each other are supposed to get this ladder, climb this thing, and get the belt. That's all they needed to work with. And it it was preposterous in its own way, but it made sense. Nothing was out of the way. Nothing was ridiculous. They built the thing as it went. The bigger amount of punishment came toward the end. They didn't start out with, you know, fucking anal sex and finish up with heavy petting. And But since then, every one of these guys that wants to have a ladder match is going to try to make it more complicated and more illogical and less sensible and require more cooperation from the opponents to do a bigger stunt show that registers with people less and less because they see more and more. And this was an example. As I said this one time, and I found out old Colt Cabana heard it, and he wasn't happy. Well, you know what? I don't give a shit. He's standing there waiting to run in at the Hammerstein Ballroom one night when El Generico and Kevin Steen are having their ladder, table, chair, Home Depot fiasco. And I'm on the stage. I said, this is everything that's currently wrong with modern wrestling. Furniture and garbage in the ring and setting up stunts to enable each other to fall through shit for meaningless pops from people that all they want to see is a goddamn car wreck. That's why we're in the position we're in. That's why all these guys have short careers. That's why they're constantly undergoing surgery. And that's why that you're, they're expecting to get more money per head out of an ever dwindling base of fans because none of this shit means a goddamn thing anymore. And they can't believe that any of this could hurt anybody because they're not told that it does. The idea of working is that shit that doesn't really hurt you is made to appear to. What the son of Dusty Rhodes, the grandson of a plumber, and slappable face Sammy did here was the opposite. They could manage to, with this performance to convince people that absolutely none of this shit hurt them in any way, even though it did. Your fucking thoughts. I liked it. What? I liked it. You know what? I find Cody so funny. Uh, and I think he's the best heel in the business. 
And I thought this is an example of what he is as a heel, despite some people cheering him. He was a heel here. Well, I yes, think, he was. Yes. Look, I knew what it was going to be, and I knew what it wouldn't be. I prefer this to a six-person ladder match or an eight-person ladder match. <laughs> it was just two people, and of course it gets ridiculous. Some of those spots, I mean, the superplex where he held them up for a while, that was pretty cool. But there were a lot of spots where I'm like, God damn. You know what? That I'll tell you what. That was the smartest thing they did. Do you know why they did it that way? Think about this. Think about the fucking physics. If you're going to superplex a guy off the top of the ladder and you boost him and go backwards in one motion, your feet as you go backwards are pushing that ladder out from under you. Right? That only makes sense because of the way that you're, the motion is going. He picks Sammy up because Sammy's not that heavy and Cody's pretty stout. He picked him up and had him straight up in the air. And Sammy's right hand was on the top of the ladder pushing up so that they were straight up and down and there was no motion going anywhere. And then they had to just fall backwards. So the ladder stayed up. That, you know, that was a... They're taking the bumps smart, but they're not smart bumps to take. Go ahead. I'm and I sorry. never, I'll be very honest with you. Once you said they were taking the Starcade 86 scaffold bumps, I never even thought of it that way. But then when they're holding on to that thing and falling off, those are the bumps you took. The only thing is they don't have Bubba trying to catch them. Yeah, well, but also Bobby took it. Also Dennis took yeah. it. And the people went crazy. And they sold it like they couldn't walk. Bobby did turn his ankle. Um, I obviously didn't have to sell, but the, you stayed down. That was the end of it. That one spot where Cody was laid on the ladder on the floor <laughs> and Sammy dove and, you know, he hit Cody hard. But if you watch the way Sammy spun right underneath yes. him and is almost like he bent in half. I was waiting for one of these guys to get seriously hurt. Thank God they didn't. I'll say it here because it seems to happen a lot with Sammy, but. There are going to be a lot of guys with major hip issues at a minimum from the dives where no one catches them at all, where it yeah. looks great and they're high up and they flip and then they just land on the mat next to a guy that's standing there. And it happens to Sammy, it seems, more than others. Right finish. I don't think they should have had Cody go over here. No. I enjoyed this for what it was and they treated it seriously. So even if you say they didn't sell anything, they popped up and you're right about all of that. There was none of the silliness that you would see in an Orange Cassidy-Adam Cole match, let's say. That's the only thing that, that saved it from complete and utter evisceration of my eyes. They were serious about it. Say what you want about what they did. They were serious about it. But I just, again, they've had Danielson showing them what to fucking do lately. They've had Punk showing them what to fucking do. They had MJF go out there and have that fucking... Match with old uh, fucking who's he, what's Darby. He? Darby, thank you. Darby Allen. That's an old Scottish folk song. They, they're they seeing what to do, but still they got to go to the stunt show, the car crash stuff, and it doesn't even register as good. I mean, I've saved two episodes of AEW Dynamite, the two episodes with Brian Danielson and Adam Page on them, because those are textbooks but um i just i you know if they want to do this shit who can how do you follow it what do you come back with how do you rematch something once you if you 
if you put a guy in the middle of the fucking interstate and run over him with a goddamn 18 wheeler and his guts and brains explode and fly everywhere and there's nothing left of him but a stain on the tracks how do you top that right they're just that's why all this shit goes by everybody they pop at the time and they cheer and laugh oh wow that looked great what a great move that's what the fans are saying now because they don't care who wins and who loses because the matches have been made unimportant because nobody gives a shit anymore because they're not serious about the fucking conflict between their opponent they just want to do the fancy moves that are oh golly that was so great and then we forget about it and and you might forget about it too except if you end up paralyzed in a fucking iron lung or in the hospital because you did that shit so the people go oh shit it's okay would you have started hour one with this or would you have started hour two with this good lord i'd you know i've got to admit the better thing, all things considered for a wrestling show and in the television business, they could have started the top of the hour, hour two with a main event like that. But, you know, if they put some of the other shit and people that are on this television show on first and run them off before they see the ladder match, I mean, I don't know. None of this makes any sense. And it doesn't, there's no, as we've talked about, thread of story amongst main event talent going through the program leading you to hang with it. It's all just standalone segments. So I don't fucking know. And you know, give, know, and give him credit. He may not do things in a smart way or in a way that lends itself to what some may call booking logic, but Cody Rhodes just kills himself. The last time we saw him, he lit himself on fire. His, excuse yeah? me, his wife lit him on fire. Well, that's true. And now this time he was taking all of these bumps and whatever you want to say about him, he definitely puts the work in, in the ring. He definitely kicks the shit out of himself. Dedication. But I guess he outworks everybody, even Christian Cage. Does he work anymore? Well, that's what I was about to say. They gave a guy a catchphrase <laughs> and a t-shirt that he outworks everyone and he hadn't wrestled since. Um, next up in this parade of terror... Tony Schiavone was with Ricky Starks and Powerhouse Hobbs. They were out in the snow by the river in Cleveland. And Starks doing a promo next week. It's him and Jay Lethal. Well, hey, Jay's been found again. Of course, it sounds like Jay's going to be doing another job. So thanks for coming, Jay. It would have been great if you'd have been treated like a star to come in. Maybe people would have paid attention. But they didn't do anything to, uh, with the environment, they're, they're out in the snow. Nobody nobody jumped in the snow or jumped in the cold river or threw a snowball. They just, Tony said, my hand is frozen to the microphone. And that was the end of the segment. They just, I guess they were out there because they saw a nice location to do a pre-tape and then had nothing to put in it related to the snow. Yeah, it was just a promo and then the usual bad Tony Schiavone comedy at the end. But the yes. good part is, you know, Hobbs and Starks are really good together. They would have fit together doing a promo in the territories just based on a look. Hobbs Maybe. is out there. He looks like a star. Yeah. And Ricky Starks can talk. So I you like think, them together. You think maybe they'll ever actually have a tag team match? It'd be nice to see. <laughs> How come Team Taz is never with Taz? Well, I don't know what they... they they're Again, 
there's no consistency. Uh, Team Taz is never with Taz. They're uh, often they're not with each other. They hardly ever wrestle. Every once in a while, one does, and when one does, he gets shit kicked out of him, and most of the other team members don't help, except for Hook, who comes out all on his own and stretches people, eating funyuns, huh? Eating funyuns and eating and eats funyuns, and then he leaves. Wardlow power bombed uh, the McGee brothers, tits and putts, and then we had a six man tag team match. Playa again help me brian are they trying to prove that they are not doing what they have been accused of doing by actually doing that thing on national television it's a six-man tag with daniel garcia and 2.0 we can't do a television program without them meanwhile the briscoes remain unsigned and ftr got a chance to eke out a victory over a team with a combined number of professional matches of 14 on the secondary program, but we get to see Garcia in 2.0 constantly. They had a six-man tag with Jericho, Santana, and Ortiz. Eddie Kingston has come out and told Jericho, or told Santana and Ortiz that Jericho's holding them back. They would have been the world tag team champions if it wasn't for Jericho. And they ought to reevaluate their relationship. So now in this match, they are obviously miffed at Jericho and they refused to tag him in through the whole thing. And then he's, it's coming off like he's supposed to be the baby face, but yet he does the very thing he's been accused of, which is stealing their spotlight. When <laughs> the only reason they win the match is because he fucking knocked the guy out with his finish first while he was outside the ring about to walk off on him because they wouldn't tag him. And then fucking Ortiz or somebody, Santana hit him with his finish after Jericho knocked the guy out. So they, this match was rotten and it did nothing for Santana and Ortiz. Santana and one of the 2.0 guys started and did you see they threw 40 or 50 sloppy, no steam punches at each other all over the ring like they're having a, supposed big fight but nobody's connected with anything and it didn't look like any good if it did and then they all started rushing they were sloppy they were missing it was a hundred miles an hour nobody would just stop and grab a fucking hold and try to get on the same page and salvage the mess and right the ship they obviously because of that opening disaster it had their time cut and instead of saying, okay, we're going we're gonna to revamp what we had down for this match for the time we've got, they just decided we're going to do everything that we had talked about beforehand in half the time. And again, the story was they wouldn't tag Jericho in, so he at one point backslap tagged himself in and just stepped in, and Ortiz did the same thing immediately. And then all the heels ran over and glommed all three of the baby faces and they went to a break. When they come back from the break, they're getting heat on Ortiz and Ortiz wipes out all three heels and then everything comes to a halt because now the story has to come into play. And by the way, you can also have your stories come into play and still lay the goddamn matches out so they don't stop and all the momentum ceases and everything looks like shit. But 
Ortiz wipes out all three heels, won't tag Jericho, waits till Santana gets back up on the apron and makes a point of tagging him. Santana makes a so-so comeback and ends up with a so-so team move with Santana and Ortiz on 2.0 where one of Santana and Ortiz like waist-locked his partner and then like he was going to give him an O'Connor roll, but he threw him back so the guy could grab the two guys and give him a double cutter and they were standing in the wrong. What the fuck? Between this being a rotten rushed match with underneath talent as the heels and the distracting story with Jericho, Santana and Ortiz are the longest established tag team there and we see them as a regular tag team less than anybody and they never look good when we see them because they're always doing this other bullshit. So it just does nothing for them at all. And like I said, Jericho hit the Judas on the stooge and knocked him into Santana's finish. So Jericho helped him win and then walk, finished walking off on him because he was mad at them for not tagging him because he's been burying them and preventing them from being a top team and making them his flunkies. But he actually has been. So they're not in the wrong. He is. But he was pay, placed in the spot to help them win the match. Brian, help me understand this. Oh, I can't. I thought there was going to be more to that question there. There's not much to no, understand. It wasn't a question. It was a plaintive plea for help. Jericho isn't very good right now, and I know a lot of people don't want to say it, especially people who have been friends with him traditionally, but he doesn't belong in there right now, and he drags anyone down to his level, and it's hard for them to get past it. MJF got past that feud. Jericho never did. And Santana and Ortiz have shown potential, and look, when they first started, Ortiz wasn't in that good a shape, or at least it didn't appear so. He was acting silly. Look at them now. Santana looks like he's in fantastic shape. Ortiz got in what I would assume is as good a shape as he's going to get in, and he acts serious. And we don't see them actually just wrestle tag team matches. I could do without the panda bear paint, but otherwise than that, I would like to see them have tag team matches with FTR or with a goddamn any... No, no, not, nothing with the Puddin' Gang and keep the Hardly Boys out of it, but some of the other teams that they have that they could do something with. But, eh. but with Jericho in there, it looks like you're watching something. You ever see, um, you know, like when Bruce Tharp had those Houston wrestling reels converted, they did something, what's it called? Progressive uh, widening, where to get, oh, yeah. <laughs> to get an old video or old footage to fit a modern... HD the four, television. The, the old four by three aspect of television, which is mo almost square, is now widescreen, and you have to spread it out. I was watching Jericho on my TV. I thought I had hit some button and done that to my TV. He had gotten so wide <laughs> on there. But look, this isn't very good. And I've liked Garcia and 2.0, and I, even I'm sick of them. And I've defended them against you a lot, but I'm sick of them too. I'd like to see them do something different with Santana and Ortiz. And too much of this Jericho shit's real. Jericho holds people back. It's just well, not, not everyone's smart enough to see it, including people who don't realize it's happening to them at times. And again, Garcia and 2.0, they're not the worst thing that ever happened. They're better than the Pudding Gang, right? But every show, multiple times, attacks. They've done more angles than fucking MJF has in two years he's been there. They've had more television matches in the last three months than FTR has probably had since they've been with the company. 
And again, we still have the, in my opinion, the tag team with the potential to draw more money than anybody, any other tag team in the business right now, if they were used properly in the right environment, the Briscoe brothers are hanging out plucking their chickens because these idiots are too busy playing with their trampoline friends. And it's just, it's ridiculous. I need some type of help in trying to to <laughs> sort this out or understand this. If I could talk to somebody that could help me make sense of, well, I don't think there's anybody that you could talk to that could help make sense of the nonsensical, but there are people you can talk to that can help make sense of some things in your life, Brian, that may not make sense to you, but might need a fresh perspective. I'm not talking about some LSD-induced fever dream like Tony Khan's booking. I'm talking about normal, everyday personal problems that people have that they might need to just talk to somebody, bounce some things off of them, get a second opinion on, whatever the case, somebody to care about it. And that, folks, is what our friends at BetterHelp do. And uh, I don't know if they can help you restore your sanity if you've watched too much AEW television, but they can help you take charge of your mental health and your personal life and the things that are preventing you from achieving your goals or interfering with your happiness. BetterHelp can assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, not a member of the Puddin' Gang. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's professional therapy done securely online with a broad range of expertise available and the service is available for clients worldwide where you can log into your account and send messages to your therapist so you can get timely responses and you can schedule the weekly video or phone sessions. No waiting rooms. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change therapists. I wish that Tony Khan was as committed to facilitating great wrestling matches as BetterHelp is to facilitating therapeutic matches. Possibly we could blend these things, and it could be therapeutic for me to see how BetterHelp might book the AEW roster. Probably better than Tony. Anyway, BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. You can visit the website, read the testimonials that are posted daily, and if you visit BetterHelp.com, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash J-C-E, and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional, you can get 10% off your first month's services. BetterHelp.com slash JCE. That's a special offer for our listeners. 10% off your first month's services. And, you know, I might I might go ahead and talk to somebody over there as well to see if, if I can get on like a crisis line thing where it's 7.55 Eastern on Wednesday nights somebody can call me and kind of soothe my nerves before this show comes on. And maybe I'd be in a better mood to be affronted by these assaults on my senses. What do you think, Brian? I think it sounds like a potential plan, although it may not work out well because I know for a fact you have never watched AEW live on a Wednesday night. So I'm not There's sure. There's the rub. <laughs> I don't There's know how 7.55 on Wednesday night would help you. Well, next on this program, and you know, I just started trying to think about this in my mind. You know, the they're giving Lance Archer a big push now. 
Good old Lance. That's the least they can do for him since he almost broke his neck in their ring trying to impress him with that moonsault a few months ago. But <sighs> explain this one to me, Desi, Ricky. Dan Lambert is now with Lance Archer and Jake Roberts. It was just when Lambert first showed up last fall that Lance Archer was the guy that came out and on behalf of the AEW roster picked Lambert up and gave him that fucking big, whatever he calls his finish, the big slam. And now he's working for Lambert because Lambert has made some deal that has not been articulated with Jake Roberts to retain the services of Lance Archer. But now the uh, here's another problem. Lance Archer and Jake Roberts have both been presented as baby faces over the last several months. But then suddenly the guy that they dropped on his head is, is going to pay them. And why, if, if Lambert was attacked by this guy and dropped on his head, why would he want that guy? Why would he trust Lance Archer? Wouldn't he throw some money at somebody else that hadn't tried to hospitalize him? That's just a question. But so now Lance and Jake are back to being heels and Lance is no longer mad at Dan Lambert and wants to hurt him. He's now taking his money because Lance Archer is the next challenger for Hangman Adam Page for the world championship because in the promotion where wins and losses matter and it's run by a statistics nerd and you've got to have a great win-loss record to climb the ladder to get the title chances, the next challenger for the world championship is a guy who took four months off from an injury and has just come back and has had maybe one television win over some subpar fucking schlub. But now he gets the next title match with Adam Page and, and the title match with Archer and Adam Page, the first in the series, first match between them, whether there's going to be a series or not, we don't know, is a Texas death match. Why is a Texas death match the, the stipulation for the very first match between these two fucking guys when they haven't had a regular match yet? We're going immediately to one man cannot continue. That's the only way this thing can be over. Before we have an actual just wrestling match for the challenger who hasn't wrestled because of injury in the past four months. Help me out here. There is no help. I won't even be able to explain this anymore when the feud ends after a one-fall 15-minute time limit match. They've never feuded. They've never had anything between them. Let's go right to Texas Deathmatch. Cody was off TV for a week. We need to have a unified champion. Let's go right to a ladder match. It's hot-shotting gimmick matches. So then after that, and, and, and by the way, also, um, Adam Page was very unconvincing in his comments in the package promoting this Texas death match. Uh, they got a world champion that still needs a lot of fucking work. And it's not even his fault 
because they haven't let him do any of the work that he should have done before he became world champion to get good at it. As we mentioned, this is ass backwards too. They put the belt on him and now they got people trying to get him over. So Tony Schiavone was in a stairway. I don't know. Is this where the, I mean, we, we used to have a lot of stairways that we liked to hang out in back in the territory days. Cause that was where most of the blowjobs happened, but they just, they have regularly, they have these people in a stairway off in a building somewhere with Tony Schiavone. This was cage jungle boy, Dino douche, Matt Hardy and private party. Private Party are the number one contenders to the tag team title. When was the last time they wrestled a tag team match on television? And how much farther before that was that they actually won one on television? I have no idea. I was surprised when they announced they were number one contenders. Well, they announced that. And nobody, and everybody else was surprised too. And I just, one note on this interview. Nobody saying any of these words believes one of them. That was my note on this interview. And then speaking of meaning, the things you say, like Mussolini, no Coke, Pepsi. Here comes CM Punk. About goddamn time. Takes over the room, takes his time on the entrance, but it's not interminable like the WWE entrances. He's keeping busy. He's moving around. He's looking at people. And he starts talking to him. And he's talking conversationally and naturally. And he stirs the people up to want to see him fight MJF. He's got MJF's scarf on that he stole last week. It's under his jacket when he takes the jacket off. He does promo uh, or promo on the cheap scarf and on Long Island. A lot of disreputable people come from that part of the country. And he wants MJF tonight. MJF comes out with the music, comes out in his suit and the same scarf. Apparently now we've seen there's a lot of these scarves around. And of course, he turns down the challenge and won't waste it on Cleveland and the fans are chanting asshole. And MJF finally agrees, okay, next week in Chicago, and we've heard this before, it's going to be CM Punk against MJF. He announced it next week in Chicago, Punk's hometown. Hmm, imagine that. And then I know it's my boy, MJF. It's my hero, Mussolini. Brian, if I said they went too long here, would you agree with me? I would this week, yes. Yeah. As I didn't want to, I don't want to paint you in a corner there, but I got to be truthful. I wrote at the point that he had announced the match. I wrote MJF is teetering on going long here and he meandered and the point that he was trying to make after he wins next week, you're going to see the real CM Punk. If he doesn't get his way, he'll sue or he'll complain or he'll quit like he did in 2014 when he quit here in Cleveland and blah, blah, blah. MJF spoke too long continuously here. I'm not saying that it was bad delivery. I'm not saying it was bad material. I think it probably could have been said in a more economic number of words to quote something that Jim Ross said to me one time. Could have been more economical with the number of words, Corny. 
I also think he spoke too long continuously without punk. There was no back and forth jousting. This was punk. This was MJF doing a soliloquy. And it started dragging. Not because he didn't have, he didn't drop his energy level. It just, it was a little much too many words to say things that could have been said more like I'm doing now too many words could have been shorter. Punk started to respond and told, you know, and he had a good line. The best thing I ever did was leave. And the best thing I ever did was come back. Okay. We get it. He told MJF off and he fired the people up, but now punk was going a little bit long because this whole thing had gotten a little long. And then all of a sudden here comes FTR and Wardlow. It's nice to see FTR can come out and do flunky business. We ought to call them the piss boys. Let's not do that to FTR. Well, that's all they get to do is come out and carry the fucking bucket, collect the piss and walk off. But anyway, Spears tackles Punk in the ring from behind while FTR and Wardlow are coming out and the heels all glom him and they gut shotted him with a chair and they choked him with a scarf. Wardlow was standing there not really excited about this or wanting to be involved because of that subplot that we've had going on for two years now. And MJF taunted Punk, and then MJF ordered Wardlow to powerbomb him, and Wardlow powerbombed him on a chair that was laying in the ring. The powerbomb's not bad enough. It has to be on a chair. But we went into sports entertainment land, which is what we have stayed away from with Punk. They're doing this. There was no bell ringing. There were no referees coming down. There was no security. There was no help. There was no urgency. It's the biggest star in the company, CM Punk. And I'm saying, I know, you know, some people bouncing on their trampoline was, oh, no, it's Kenny. It's Kenny. Kenny. No, the biggest star in this fucking company, if it's not named Brian Danielson, is CM Punk. One of those two has the fucking spot locked down. And you can't tell me if a gang of people is beating up the biggest star in the company and it's not supposed to happen that somebody wouldn't be trying to do something. It's distracting from the angle when they're not trying to do something. That's why you, when you set these things up, you explain to the people that are supposed to be trying to do something what they're supposed to be doing or trying to do and to not succeed. But no bell, no referees, no help. They beat him up, and then MJF sits cross-legged, Indian style, as they called it when I was a kid, on him, on his chest, and says, see you in Chicago. This had to last 20 minutes. And, I mean, hey, Babe Ruth struck out every now and then. But I could have done with half this long, and I could have done with a little more urgent, chaotic, physicality and believable violence at the end instead of a sports entertainment angle where nobody was trying to stop the crime from taking place. Your thoughts? I did think it went too long. I thought that what they were setting up was good, but it could have been done a little quicker. I, I agree with it, just about everything you said. I didn't mind the beatdown and specifically the powerbomb under the chair spot as much. Was it superfluous? Maybe. But it didn't you know, out of all the things we see on this show, that was the least of the things that bothers me. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we're, we're, I'm picking at nits here on this was by far 
the best thing on the show and the best talent on the show, but still they can, they can achieve better than this. This was a rare swing and a, maybe a single or whatever. And it may not be the best usage of them, but we got FTR out there interacting with CM Punk. It's a little better than them not on TV for weeks at a time or doing feuds with Arn Anderson's little friends or whatever they're doing. I'm happy to see them doing something with a main eventer. And hopefully FTR will be used a little better in the future. But we're getting ready for the match. It's been, what, three months or so they've been building up MJF and Punk. I am really curious to see them in the ring finally. I Oh, I, want, I definitely want to see the match next week. And in Chicago, you know the fucking response will be off the charts. I just, again, when it's top talent and they're capable of doing such good work and it's a main event match and it's something that people want to see, if you're going to shoot an angle, I want an angle with heat. I want an angle with chaos. I want an angle where the guy getting a shit kicked out of him is in jeopardy and the heels are riding high. I want to see if we can induce in somebody's fucking mind out in that crowd the thought that we that's what we used to go for. That's what every time I set up a fucking heat angle, that's what I was going for. I had in my mind there's somebody in this crowd that we can fucking take on this ride that will lose control of themselves and think if if I don't do something to stop this, nobody's going to and at least try to start over that rail. That's the idea of a fucking heat angle. Of course, when 20 or 30 or 40 of them get the same idea at the same time, then you've gone too far. But I've never done one without wanting to create that environment. And, you know, it, it goes down to you have to get everybody involved. You have to tell each referee or each underneath guy running in or each security guy. Sometimes I would tell guys specifically how many bumps to take off the apron when they were playing King of the Hill in the ring before they finally fucking laid there and sold one. Um, just to make sure that we had enough people trying to come in. I would make sure I told the guy ringing the bell that if I'm not on the fucking headset cue and you just count to fucking 15 and start ringing it again, I would give everybody cues, places to be times to run in, stagger it. So it looks like more help is needed. Go back and find the WCW Saturday night show where the midnight express did the angle with Pillman and zinc. And we did the fucking Vegematic on Pillman's throat with the racket over the top of it. You see referees being tossed out. Then you see other people coming in, try to save. It's a staggered run-in. We're playing King of the Hill. We're keeping people out. It's urgent. That's happened in a... I saw these angles when I was a fucking kid, and I saw people coming over the rail to respond to them. And sometimes you have to go a while before it fucking clicks in. And it's not going a while of shitty-looking, phony stuff. It's going a while of chaos and jeopardy. And you build that fucking environment, and that's what people makes people want to see the guy that just got the shit kicked out of him or whatever happened to him come back later and get even. Elsewise, it's just meaningless motion. If they don't believe it, they can't get into it. They can't lose themselves in it, or they can't even say, well, now say what you want. This shit's all set up, but goddamn, leave him alone. Whatever. This is just, just, I, I'm getting grumpier. 
Tony Schiavone was there with Griff Garrison, Julia Hart, and Sterling the fucking lawyer. And this, Mark Sterling's wearing a neck brace because somebody dropped him on his head. I can't even remember who it was. Julia Hart's wearing an eye patch. Griff Garrison's there wearing his varsity blondes jacket like the fucking goof in high school. Sterling wanted Julia to sign a release for a match with Jane Cargill on the Friday night throwaway show. And Griff didn't, didn't want her to do it. He said, read it first. So she naturally says, don't tell me what to do. and ignores him and signs it immediately. So the one eyed girl signs a release that it's not my fault. If I get hurt, cause I can't see to the lawyer wearing a neck brace. Who's working a goddamn insurance scam. And now Julia is mad at both. Griff and Pillman, apparently. I, what the fuck? And then Layla Hirsch versus Red Velvet with a jump start. Because, of course, it's a grudge match from the backstage heel turn that Layla Hirsch did last week. We're in a minute and a half pre-tape. They were all friends, her and Red Velvet. And goddamn, who was the other girl? Statlander. Queen of Sheena, Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, or Queen of Sheena the Jungle, or whoever Chris the fuck Statlander. Chris Statlander, okay. Layla Hirsch jumps them from behind in the pre-tape and beats them up, and now it's a grudge match. So here's a jump start. And I skipped through this, thankfully. But Layla Hirsch got some heat on old Red Velvet afterwards, and here came Statlander, and Layla Hirsch ran out of the ring, and Statlander chased her, and Layla Hirsch runs up the ramp, and her stops at the bottom of the ramp and they turn around and stare each other, stare at each other. And that's when JR, and this was retweeted, and I got it. He hit the, the magical wall line, which he misspoke. But did you see this on Twitter? I did because I think I saw you retweet it. What Jim Ross said was when Layla Hirsch, that's done all this damage, runs up the entryway and Statlander chases her out and then stops at the bottom and then Layla turns around and they just stare at each other. It was a saying that Bill Watts used to have and Jr. misspoke, but he, he was just seeing it and he was frustrated. Like everybody that knows what they're doing in the wrestling business is when they watch this show, they're frustrated. Watts used to scream at the guys. When baby faces would make a save and the heels would run off, when the heels would bail out on the floor, the baby faces would stop. And the heels would stop and stand there because, and some of them were bad about this, they wanted to get their heat. They wanted to raise their hand and flip off the crowd or whatever, and people boo them. But it buried the baby faces because, as Watts would say, what the fuck, did an invisible wall just rise up out of the floor and you can't follow them? If you were mad enough to run out here and chase them out of the ring for what they've done, why do you stop running when they're still there? So that way the heels figured out when we're being chased out of the ring, we've done our damage. And this is a good lesson for most heels to learn. When you've done your damage and the baby face is hit for the save, when you bail out of that, especially if it's not, if there's no contact called for, if they just say powder, no contact, and you can get out of there without getting a shit kicked out of you, do it and keep running. Because this is something I learned when I managed Adrian Street, and, and things were different in England back in those days, and Dundee yelled at us about it. Adrian would do a fuck finish, and we'd get heat, and we'd cheat, and we'd win, 
And then instead of getting out on the floor and getting the fuck out of there with the heat, he would stand there with his arms up and he would milk the crowd and he'd yell at people and he'd let them yell at him. And then Dundee told us, told me, and I I think Adrian was a little cranky with it, but he'd been doing that a long time, but it registered with me. You've just insulted these people. You've just pissed them off. You have made them mad. Whatever you in the, in the ring with whatever you've done to their hero, the babyface wrestler, you've made them mad. You've insulted them. You've the equivalent of calling them names or whatever. Now get the fuck out of there because the longer you stay there, the less mad they're going to be at you. Even if somebody doesn't come out and beat you up physically, you're giving them the opportunity to throw shit at you, to cuss you, to cuss you no good motherfucker, you piece of shit. Every horrible phrase, if and there would be there'd be phrases that they would be kicking people out of AEW shows right and left for uttering. But the longer you stand there and let them do it, the more they've got it out of their system. The less they're mad at you. They're venting at you right now. No, that's not what you want. When you've made them mad, you've hit the insult, you've fucking slapped them in the face, you kicked their dog, whatever you, whatever simile you want to draw, they're as mad as they're going to be when you hit the floor, get the fuck out of there, because now they're mad they didn't get a chance to tell you what they thought of you. God damn, next week I'll tell that motherfucker what I think of him, because now he's gone like a piece of shit coward. They're still mad. They didn't get to yell. They didn't get to cuss you. They didn't get to throw nothing at you. Does this make sense? Yes, although maybe not for Statlander and Layla Hirsch. Well, I know. <laughs> nothing makes sense for the, the, the an alien from the Andromeda galaxy and a girl that's four foot fucking six, both tall and wide. It doesn't have to make sense anyway. Nobody gives a shit. But the fucking principle is the same. If the heel don't run when the baby face and Lance Storm had the perfect solution to this on his Twitter when they were everybody was debating this. When you run in to make the save and the heel bails, go to the baby face you've just saved. Then you can stop running because you're doing what you came to do. And while you're checking on that baby face, the heel can put enough space in between him and you that there's no reason for you to take off after him anyway, because by now you ain't going to catch him. Just stop at the baby face. That's a, and that's what every smart baby face since the beginning of saves has done. If they ain't going to catch the heel, they don't get out, run. They don't let the guy escape. They make the save and then check on the baby face gives the heel a chance to get away. Nevertheless, that's when JR said, well, I I don't understand this magical wall that comes up. (laughs) It was an invisible wall, but it could be magical too. But that came from Bill Watts, who taught us all how to make sense of this shit. And who now, if we asked to watch any of these shows, would probably take the big stick he used to carry and beat all of us into fucking jelly. Or he'll give us a speech about the Russians, one or the other. One or the other. It wouldn't be about these shows. I I couldn't get him to watch one of my shows 20 years ago and give me a critique on it. I don't think that the Federal Reserve has yet printed the money that it would take to get Bill Watts to watch any of these programs. Hold on. You asked him to watch OVW and he wouldn't? 
Um, that was, yes, it was, uh, after we did Christmas chaos, I sent a couple of TVs. I said, could you tell me what you think? I never heard anything back. He didn't want to watch any fucking wrestling. Not enough Russians. There you go. Actually, we had a Russian. No, we didn't. He was Czechoslovakian. Anyway, so then we were in the ring with Tony Schiavone. Boy, he gets around. And Britt Baker, who the ring was set up with all her Pro Wrestling Illustrated Awards and her magazine covers. And, you know, she's probably the best heel girl promo in the business. Her and Charlotte in different ways. She's a... uh, Britt's a smartass bitch and charlotte is more of a queen ice bitch type of thing but i don't you know she can talk her ass off although you want to talk things that went long i thought this went long too well she didn't have a lot to say (laughs) but the thing that distracted me was again it doesn't make sense that she's a heel, but people like her because she's entertaining and you find your, take your entertainment where you can get it in this company. But she's a heel. People like her, but she knocks them. But Tony Schiavone, the announcer, is a good friend of hers, even though the announcer is not supposed to be friends with the heels because the announcer is a representative of the promotion. And why would the announcer that you have positive thoughts of validate the low and underhanded actions of a heel by saying what a great person she is. So that hasn't made any sense from the start, but it's some thing that tickles them that they talk about and get a joke over backstage or whatever. So nevertheless, but what was just so distracting, Tony's in the ring. He introduces her and says, here she is. Then Britt Baker takes the microphone and the announcer, the host of the program, just walks over and stands in the turnbuckle in one of the corners with a frumpy look on his face for this entire promo and the way that they were shooting it with the the handheld in the ring. He was behind her the whole time. He didn't even go to a neutral corner where he wouldn't be on camera all the time. So while Britt is talking... You see the host of the program leaning in the corner in the back, having given her the microphone and turned the program over to her. When is the last time that you saw Howard Cosell, after the goddamn Ali fight is over with, go in to get the comments from Muhammad Ali, hand Ali the microphone, and go stand over in the fucking corner? It was distracting because it's phony. Because they, they've got all the people in there to make it look right, and they still go with this sports entertainment bullshit. You don't hand the guy the fucking microphone and just let him do what he wants and just stand there. Or worse, the announce here, here's the microphone, and then just gets out of the ring. You're the host of the show. You're interviewing somebody. Why is this difficult? It does the basketball, baseball, football, courtside. Field side, sideline interviews. Every network does them. It's not, nobody does this. Very off-putting to me. I'm a little sick, too, of the promos mentioning local sports teams. It's happening every show now. Well, I I can understand that. I've done that many times in the past. And with Cleveland, you've got such a rich history and tradition of shitty sports teams to work with. So that's a heel thing. I mean, that's, you know... 
I, I can't find fault with that. I got at a baseball game. I got a couple people try to climb over the fucking. Well, it wasn't a railing. It was I'd climb over the dugout, whatever the baseball terminology is. That Cleveland Indians game. I said, "Hey, the last people the Indians beat was Custer." Well, fuck you. Anyway, um, we did get a recap of two weeks ago when FTR challenged Brock Anderson and Shoddy Lee to a tag team match, and then they couldn't even have that because of COVID protocols with somebody. And now, as I mentioned, FTR will get to eke out a close victory over two guys that have had a combined total of 14 matches in front of people. And then in a bizarre demonstration, display, snit, whatever it was, the announcers are talking, and Vicky Guerrero and Nyla Rose come out to the stage mad at Ruby Soho, and they want her next week, and Vicky did her, excuse me, excuse me, and then Nyla Rose did a promo, and uh, she didn't do a bad job at it, but it just nobody gave a fuck. It came off flat as fuck, and then they just walked back in in 45 seconds. We want Ruby Soho. We want her next week. Fuck it. Boom. Done. Hey. Remember when Ruby Soho was possibly was going to be one of the most popular fucking women in the business for about a week and a half till they botched her too? Yep. And then we come to the end of this thing. It's the end of a lot, frankly, folks. The end of an era. See what I did there? It was the end of an era. It's undisputedly the end of an era. There was an era in wrestling where the undisputed era were a top group, a faction. They were the only, I won't say the only in every case, they were the most watchable and most highly anticipated appearances on NXT. They did some great shit. They seemed serious about everything. That was an era that is now over because the official undisputed era has been finished off. Not only did they get three quarters of the top heel group for their opposition formerly on Wednesday nights, they bring Fish in and beat him like a fucking drum. They bring Kyle O'Reilly in and fucking neuter him. And they bring Adam Cole in, and I can't say this is character assassination because Adam has had a hand in it also. I think it is an assisted suicide. Because between the way that they have used Adam, the people that they have surrounded him with, the lack of giving a complete teetotal fuck about his appearance and his physique that not having the the people in NXT that were apparently keeping him from appealing or going along with his worst instincts and were keeping him on the straight and narrow all this stuff has disappeared and now in the final nail in Adam Cole's professional coffin they had a lights-out match, no disqualification, between Adam Cole and Pockets. 
They had him working matches with this clown before. At least he was winning. It was still an insult. I can't imagine anybody in the professional wrestling industry serious about what they're doing and wanting to have a good career being booked against pockets and not immediately refusing and say, no, <laughs> this is not going to happen. Fire me if you want to. I'm not going to bury myself and destroy my career on national television, but nobody's got the guts or the gumption anymore. They don't have the balls. They don't give a shit about their profession. They'll just do whatever with whoever. So again, a rematch in a no DQ garbage match. Lights out. Eddie Graham would be spinning in his grave if he could hear about this. Not only did they put Adam Cole back in the ring with Pockets, Pockets won. Pockets beat him. They beat a guy that was just three months ago was a WWE superstar that had a debut on one of their pay-per-views and people went out of their minds. They managed to assimilate two of the three members of his group with him. And that was to come to this inflection point where the company mascot not only beat Adam Cole on television, but risked his fucking safety and well-being by giving him some stupid bump off the stage while he did it. So not only is Adam Cole now completely wasted and finished as a serious talent for this company, but to could have hurt him at the same time just because this goddamn goof, idiot, imbecile, pinhead, moron, with his hands in his pockets and his thumb in his ass, can look good because Tony Khan is tickled by him and dressed up like him on Halloween. Tony Khan would have gone a long way toward dispelling the notion that this is a rich kid's vanity project if he didn't serendipitously get talent of this quality in his fucking upstart company and then book him in garbage mask matches with the mascot. They started out with a sloppy, phony-looking children's hockey fight that all the kids are doing these days. And it got worse from there. At one point, this was what everybody wanted me to see because I was zipping through some of this because why fucking dignify pockets with watching him? Adam Cole goes under the ring to pull a chair out like that would be necessary against this fucking clown. And when he pulls it out, Danhausen came with it. He was hanging on the other end of it. So now I guess I'm going to end up hating this guy. I believe we've mentioned the reason why that I've never watched this guy actually on a wrestling program or anything related to wrestling is because I knew I'd hate it. But when we saw the cameos and his promos, we got a tickle out of him because he was funny. If I see him in a wrestling context, I'm probably going to hate his guts. And that's apparently is coming up. But once again, and I'm glad he's back from his broken leg and I don't wish the guy any ill. But my God, talk about promotional malfeasance again. I remind you, 
Mark and Jay Briscoe are cleaning out a chicken coop. And Danhausen has now been signed to the second biggest company in the fucking country. So they even went through a break. When they came back from the break in this match, there was a chain in the ring. There was a garbage can in the ring, garbage can lid in the ring, three chairs in the ring. They're taking bumps in the furniture. Suddenly, for no reason except it, why wouldn't they? Here comes Brandon Cutlet and Wheelie Yuda and Bobby Fish and Muffin Top and the Hardly Boys and Trent and Romero. And they all come out and do the sloppy indie fight that all the indie guys do and then cole hits pockets with a nut shot and pockets doesn't sell it and he reaches in his pants and pulls out a cup well that was kind of cute i've seen that done before in wrestling it would have been even cuter if he'd reached in and showed that there was no reason for him to sell because he has no fucking balls <sighs> Have you noticed that this guy just aggravates the fuck out of me because it's so silly and so stupid and so disrespectful, and I can't imagine that we've come this far, this far, we've gone this far in the business that this guy even has a job or can get booked on a show, and I may be 60 and in perfect health, I'm still bigger than he is, and I'd love to go out in public one of these days just so I could slap him like that goddamn idiot with a sock and a snake on his fucking arm. But nevertheless, after he pulls out the cup and doesn't sell his fictitious balls, he does fake kicks to Adam Cole's shin and then gives Adam Cole his own move, the Panama Sunrise, which gets a two count. Then they fight outside the ring, into the tunnel, up on the stage, and back to the back to the Tony position. I can't call it the gorilla position. I liked gorilla. I don't want to disrespect him. I'll call it the Tony position. And Cole dumps pockets through the table and covers him, and there's a referee there with a two count. It's false count anywhere, too, apparently, now. Of course, every lights out match is false count anywhere, except that's never been the case, ever. This is every stupid, phony, idiotic trope, to use everybody's favorite word, of modern outlaw garbage wrestling. At that point, when they went through Tony's table, I couldn't wait. I fast-forwarded to the end. They were on top of the entranceway, and I swear to God, I'm telling the truth here, this is not comedic exaggeration. This is exactly what was on the television program. Pockets hugs Adam Cole. Like, he just hugs him. And Cole acts like he's trying to struggle and couldn't get loose. Even though this is not Joe LaDuke bear-hugging him, this is this wafer-thin fucking idiot with his hands in his pockets. Well, now he didn't even have his hands joined. He just hugged Cole. Cole acts like he can't get loose. And then they just both fall off the stage. They just fell. It's not like... Pockets gave him something. It's not like they did some, but they just fell off the stage and Cole landed back first and Pockets was on top. And at least it wasn't cardboard and a crash pad that went poof, like old poof Jericho. They got balsa wood for this. So that was even worse because now for no reason otherwise than to placate the goof that the boss thinks is his favorite wrestler. 
Cole took a chance on going through and getting cut up and sliced up with that balsa wood and pockets pins him in the middle of the goddamn wreckage. One, two, three. Thanks for coming, Adam Cole. You used to be a star. Now you're a goddamn jack-off piece of shit. I don't know why, while you were down there, he didn't fucking pull out his skid-marked underwear and wipe them on your face. That's the equivalent of what they just did to you. So now, that's the first pockets match that I've watched since this fiasco started. Talking about AEW on television, and that'll be the last one, and that'll also be the last Adam Cole match I watch, because it's no longer... It's no longer even necessary to give him any help advice little rah-rah speech it's wasted it's done it's over might as well book him out in pwg with the muffin gang and the pudding gang with muffin top they'll have fun they can just wheel their trampoline in from the backyard this guy was a serious fucking talent he's done he's over it's finished kaput in the archives History, vapor, as Buddy Landell would say, vapor. That's what I thought about that. There are some, I'll even say stupid fans out there who have been a little upset with some of your critiques and my critiques here on the show saying that Adam Cole is doing such great work. How could anyone have a problem with what Adam Cole is doing in AEW? Adam Cole sucks right now. We've talked about his physical shape. He's in worse physical shape than almost anyone listening right now. Even if you're big and fat, you may have a little muscle tone somewhere. It looks like he doesn't go to the gym. Hey, it takes it takes a little bit of muscle to move all that flab around. He comes out there with that leather jacket on or that coat, whatever. He looks like he's wearing his older brother's jacket. He's got the hair and he's got the look into the camera when he does his little pose that everyone likes doing because everyone likes chanting everything. But other than that, he doesn't look like a fucking wrestler. You can critique anyone you want. You can even say pockets. Orange Cassidy has muscles. He looks like a guy that works over at Valvoline and goes by the gym a couple of nights a week. He looks like he goes to the gym. Looks like he could be athletic. Adam Cole does not. It doesn't look like he could be a celebrity or a star or talented, but he looks athletic. He looks more like a star than Adam Cole right now. I'm not arguing that. That's the, that's the state of it. He looks worse than the biggest joke in the company. Adam Cole is a guy that could do all the moves and kick out the same way everyone else does. But boy, I liked him in NXT and I don't want, I'm like you, I don't want to see him. I felt like this for a while now. When this he came good. to Ring of Honor, he was 19 years old. Him and O'Reilly, uh, we said, this is the future because these kids are serious. O'Reilly was training his ass off in the MMA. He was you know, Adam Cole came. He was always prepared. He was always ready to go. He didn't have any bad habits that I was aware of at that point in time. I'm talking about substances or anything. He apparently has some bad habits now, the friends he picks. Um, his promos were excellent. From the start, he not only could speak well and articulately, but he had conviction in his voice, and he seemed serious about what he was doing. He learned. He got better. After I left Ring of Honor, I didn't watch a bunch of it, but I see that he was on top there for some time and then went to NXT and was on top there. And I thought, this kid has his shit together. He's talented. He's serious. He takes the business seriously. He wants to excel. 
He's not a jack off. And, and then this, this all happens. If, if obviously I was wrong about him because if I hadn't been wrong about him, when he got there, he would have said, look, no, you just got me from NXT. I have a fucking, I have buzz. I have a career going, put me in the goddamn mix with these guys and I'll perform for you. Don't put me in the ring with the pudding gang. Don't make me fucking fuck with the guy with his hands in his pockets. That's for jokers, outlaw guys, and fucking job guys. If he was serious about his business and if he was confident in his ability in it, he would have refused to interact with any of those people and he would have done what Danielson and Punk have done, which is apparently gone around Tony, cherry-picked their opponents, and told them how things are going to be, which is why all their shit's good. He also needed to go to the gym. Again, I'm going to say this again. Unless he's ill and we don't know it, there's no excuse for him to come into AEW looking like that. Yeah, we've seen the picture. He didn't come to AEW looking like that. He came to AEW looking a lot better. Now he looks like that. It's been a steady decline. You've seen the pictures from last year in NXT where he had tone to him. He didn't weigh 250 pounds. He had a tan and he had a couple of muscles and now he's, it looks like he's been floating in the river for three days and he doesn't have a goddamn muscle in his body and he's given up. I know, I know he, if, if I was a professional wrestler and I was forced to wrestle pockets, I would give up too, because I would know my career is done. I'm finished, but he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to just give up. And just roll over and say, okay, whatever. That means he did it because he doesn't care not to do it, which means he isn't as serious or as much of a talent as I unfortunately thought he was all these years. I have never been so disappointed. Or he actually believes it's good, which is even worse. But what I was going to say He doesn't before, believe it. He's been around the business for 10 fucking years. He knows that these guys are jack-offs. He knows what's right and what's wrong. He's playing with his friends. He doesn't give a shit what he looks like. And he's out there fucking taking bumps off the entrance way with the fucking mascot. He is, he knows that it's rotten and he doesn't give a shit because he's getting paid by a billionaire Mark and he's having fun. He's not serious. The one that's going to disappoint me the most, I think is actually not Adam Cole. Cause this is who Adam Cole is. I accept it. This is going to be him going forward. Bobby fish was brought in and not used well at all at the beginning to the point where he doesn't mean much right now. But Kyle O'Reilly was the one coming in who actually probably had the most potential to do something with. They yep. had finally broken him off from them in NXT, made him a single. Of course, when they switched to 2.0, that was the end of him there. But he's now again just a guy aligned with the guys, as opposed to someone who probably has the ability and the talent right now to do something else. And again, a guy who works hard, has a completely different style, and not only that, but a style that makes him look like a fighter, even at that slim frame. He's got the Diaz attitude going on for him, the Diaz brothers. His shit looked nice and real and legitimate. Are they going to stick him in the ring with the fucking guy with the hands in the pockets? Um, Kyle is, is, is somebody who actually may have the balls and guts to stand up for himself and say, no, this would be detrimental not only to the business, but my career, just because, Tony, you get a kick out of him. I don't need to be doing this. He might actually do that. We'll find out. But he had, I'd, I I was going to say he had a, he has a ton of potential. He had a ton of potential. 
I don't know now whether you can trust any of those guys in, in these hands because the only the younger guys and the guys that want to contribute the most are the ones that will allow themselves to be shot in the foot and just do what they're told. And the, and the, the top guys and the guys with more experience and the guys that know better are going to pick their own shots mostly. And that's why their shit sucks less. Or in the case of Jericho, he's picking his, he's doing his own shit. It makes everybody else look bad and he thinks it makes him look good. But you know, guys that of that age, Kyle, I guess Cole, whatever, they're just going to do what they're told to do. And it's a shame because there's no place else for Kyle to go. He would have been wasted in NXT 2.0 but now he's going to be wasted here, and that's a really valuable, different kind of talent that you could have made something out of. But it's rapidly becoming late for him because now he's in the flunky group of the guy that just got beat by the mascot. So how fucking good is he? Talk about the email from the fan earlier in the show where, yeah, the Briscoes just got beat by a bunch of fucking backyarders in six minutes. So how long will it take real wrestlers to beat them? That's that's common sense and logic, which unfortunately nobody in the wrestling business uses anymore because they're all convinced that they're smart to the business. They're so smart to the business, they're fucking idiots. They've gone around the business and come back up behind it from the other side. They've gone so far. And, they're, and they, they, oh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so that's what happened on that program. Do you remember, was it six weeks ago where they, my God, this is AEW one night for an hour and a half. This is one of the best wrestling programs I've seen in years. They're getting their shit together. They're going to win this thing. Vince is handing them all the talent. Old Nick Khan up there is fucking cutting all their goddamn darlings, uh, that uh, the wrestlers that the people would like. It's all going AEW's way. And now AEW responds by putting on several weeks in a row of some really shitty fucking television with shit that doesn't make sense and misusing their talent. Fuck you, Vince. You're not going to let us win that easy. We'll goddamn show you. We're going to take a baseball bat and hit ourselves in the nuts with it. I've never seen people trying harder to lose a fucking fight. I'm done. How about you? I'm ready for the Royal Rumble. Well, that's what we're going to talk about in just a couple of days on Tuesday's drive-thru. We'll see if the Royal Rumble is anything that it's cracked up to be, and uh, we'll examine the WWE's attempts to counter-program this facetious falderall that they have on the other channel. Uh, Did I ever tell you, you know, the Rumble... You know, a lot of kids, when they're little, they get toy train sets, right? Did you ever have a toy train set? I didn't, but I know that kids have gotten But you those. know kids have had toy train sets. I never got a toy train set when I was a kid. My parents got me a toy subway. I just stood in the middle of the room and stared at the floor, and every once in a while it rumbled. All right, where's that drum roll? It was yours. Yeah. It was your drum. Did you ever get a brunch or did. did it just keep rolling? <laughs> it just kept rolling. Just kept roll, rolling, <laughs> rolling, rolling down the river. All right. We're going to roll on down the highway on this episode of the Jim Cornette Experience. We'll be back for the drive through and uh, not only have bad wrestling, 
uh, from the WWE, but also your questions about good wrestling. So now's your chance to send in some questions about good wrestling. You got a couple of days. We'll be back with that on Tuesday. Back here next week on the experience for the proctologist from Princeton himself, the Baron of Last Manor, the great Brian Last. I am the illustrious James E. Cornett. Thank you, fuck you, and bye-bye, everybody. Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, I need to watch the show Meltzer says I'm in the key demo Meltzer says I'm in the key demo My mom's basement. I still know what fine I paid for it. school. We've got indie stars drop back from wrestling school. I chose at the top of the car. He trained himself in his own backyard. And this is shit everyone should get. Well, everyone. Except Jim Cornette Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate Who needs women for hanging round in bars When you can watch the Bucks get seven stars When you can watch the Bucks earn seven stars Dynamite Jerry Cone, Orange Cassidy and Michael Rio. Like Tony, I do fantasy booking. A title tournament, now we're cooking. And I can wait to hear what Cody has to say when Marcus Stunt goes all the way. Wednesday nights, I get to stay up late. Watch Kenny Omega while I'm at. Wrestling heaven. Don't listen to Corgi, he hasn't been relevant since 87. He thinks that Luchasaurus can't work a lick, or that Bobby Eaton could hold a candle to either Matt or him. He wants to cut up our heroes with a rusty fishing knife, or get them in the hot tub to play Scott the Submarine with him and his wife. And no, Mom, I'm not bitter. This has nothing to do with Jim blocking me on Twitter. And now, here comes Miro. Wearing pajamas like me, he's my hero The young bucks could shoot on Buzz Sawyer Make Brock Lesnar take a Canadian destroyer Don't come in, Mom! Don't come in! Are you touching yourself again? No. Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Watch Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, I need to watch this show 
Single 